This is the inner sanctum. Neurology. The results are beyond imagination. To penetrate man's mind intrigues me more and more. But my personal life is a failure. After two years of marriage to Maria, it's no go. I hate her. Not murder, Doctor. You haven't the courage. When did you last see your wife? What are you talking about? Murder. Your wife's been killed. <gasps> Dr. Steele, you've got to believe me. I didn't kill Maria. Pretty messy, throwing acid in a woman's face and killing her. Motive could be jealousy. What do you think, Doctor? I wasn't jealous of my wife. Welcome to The Bloody Pit. My name is Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And tonight we come to you to discuss universal horror films, or are they? Are they? <laughs> <laughs> I think we could call them thrillers. Yes. But it is debatable as to whether or not these mm. fit into the horror category, but mm. they are pretty close. We are talking about the first two of the Inner Sanctum movies. Yes. Um, we decided to cover these uh, these six films. There's a set of six Inner Sanctum films produced by the Universal, Universal Studios in the mid-40s. And we decided to do them as a unit. We're going to do two sets of three... I mean, three sets of two. Now I can't even speak. <laughs> and um, both Troy and I were talking before we started to record, and we both think that we may have made a mistake because maybe we should have broken down and done these as uh, done these one at a time the way we always have been. But we've we, we we've baked the pie, and it's time to cut it open and see if the if everything yeah. came together. So so this show may run a little long, folks. <laughs> it might it might. We, we I'm gonna try I'm gonna try to keep it. Uh, Keep it uh, smart and brief, and uh, as it, it, we like won't, the films, it, yeah. like the films themselves, who barely stretch to uh, a little bit over the hour mark, mm-hmm. which you know is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Now, just out of curiosity, to get to get, get things started, Troy, what has been your feelings about the Inner Sanctum films in general? Okay, um, um, yeah, I mean before before now, anyway. Yes, yes, I shall begin at the beginning. Now, it's, it's where now where I first saw these. Was on Friday nights they would show horror movies, you know, black and a lot of them black and white, a lot of the Universal films uh, on our UHF channel. And I spoke with my little brother to see if his memory was any better than mine as far as he watched these with me. We would watch these always on Friday nights, and we feel like this was probably would have been around the early '80s when when we saw these. It would have been when they were showing these. Okay. So we were used to, they like I said, they showed a lot of the Universal Monster movies and some other monster movies. They started showing the Inner Sanctum films, had no idea what they were, just saw that they had great titles, you know, and, and had True. Lon Chaney Jr. in them. So it's like, okay, well, we, we were Lon Chaney Jr. fans. We thought the name sounded cool, you know, weird woman calling Dr. Death, you know, that's a dead man's <laughs> eyes, you know. I mean, Frozen Ghost, how can you not love that? Pillow of Death. <laughs> well, then, okay, okay, yes, okay. yeah, let's not, yeah, there are exceptions. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, Needless to say, we were okay. We're both pretty young. I mean, at that point, I'm not even out of my teens. My younger brother's ten years younger than me, so you can imagine he he didn't make it too long through these films. Oh, okay. Um, you know, uh, I made it. I would watch them all. I didn't. I didn't dislike them, but they didn't really make a big impression on me. I mean, I I I would. I think especially at that time, 
I was I was not had not quite developed as much of appreciation for mystery films as opposed to horror films that I do now because at that time I was wanting to see horror you know like I, that's what I was expecting that's that's what I was especially with those titles Long Chain Junior I was hoping to see something that would be more overtly supernatural or horrific in nature so the mystery elements of them didn't make that big impression on me. Um, I did think it was kind of interesting to see Chaney Jr. Basically, we could also call this the Lon Chaney Jr. Stud Muffin series is what this is. <laughs> so it was, it was it was interesting, though not entirely convincing, you know, watching him do this. And then and then I still, what always stuck really in my mind from those films over the years when I went years and years without seeing them. So when I thought back of them, it was a lot of scenes of Chaney Jr. thinking to himself, you know, lots of voiceovers. And, lots of voiceovers. Which we'll get into. But um, so didn't watch them again until... Uh, the DVD set was released, and I got that, spun back through them again. You know, this is like just a couple of years, you know, a few years ago. I'm, I'm, I'm about know, 15, I've, yeah. I've come, I've much more uh, developed a lot more. I mean, during that time, I've become much more appreciative of just a good mystery film, you know, and uh, knowing what they were this time going around, you know, I was able to just watch them for what they were. You know, I kind of thought they were, you know, I've, I definitely enjoyed them more. You know, definitely enjoyed them more. You know, didn't just fall in love with them or anything, but I did at this time, knowing what they were, you know, they were interesting mysteries and yeah. get a lot of familiar, more familiar with a lot of the cast now, you know, and and, um, and still kind of appreciate them for what they were, that I definitely enjoyed them more as an adult going around to them. And then, of course, this time when getting ready for this show will be really kind of my third spin through these films. I have watched and rewatched the Inner Sanctum films. Uh, I first caught up with them. I never saw them on television. Mm-hmm. I first caught up with them when uh, they were released on the, those double feature VHS tapes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm guessing in the 90s. Right. Uh, that's how I caught up with them because uh, they put two to, two to a videotape because, of course, you know. Yeah, well. <laughs> they're only an hour and three <laughs> right. minutes long. Right. Uh, and so I came to them through those VHS releases and... Yeah, and I never got those. I remember them, but I never got any of those. I soaked those up. I mm. really enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. Because to me, they were... Uh, I, I am and have been for a very long time uh, a fan of not just horror, but of course mystery. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, if you can promise... Even if you promise that there might be a little bit of a supernatural element and you don't come through with it, it doesn't disappoint me. Mm-hmm. Because well, see, I, I... I have to tell you right now, I'm the guy that, like, you know, I, I loved... I watched Scooby-Doo religiously as a kid, but I <laughs> always hoped just once it would turn out to be a real monster and not just somebody in a mask. But anyway, go ahead. So. Well, I mean, that, and that is, you know, the standard formula. That is uh, essentially the standard formula of these Intersectum yeah, films. Sure. Let's be clear. Yeah. But I will admit that I really enjoyed them. I have watched and rewatched them. Uh, the, my favorite ones, I will admit... Uh, I've probably watched in excess of six or seven times mm-hmm. over the years. Wow, cool! Uh, yeah, just because they're they're an hour long. If it's like, well, yeah, I mean, it's they're, yeah, they're, it's, they're enjoyable and mm-hmm. they're, they're the kind of thing that it's easy to sit and kind of absorb mm-hmm. and pick apart and play with and see how you know see how they're doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can remember who, if you can remember this time around who the murderer turned out to be, mm-hmm. you can kind of start you know you start looking for the clues, mm-hmm. you start yeah. looking for yeah. the things that point in that direction. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, to me, it's. It's a great little series of films. And you do appreciate that they still gave them the same like lighting and black and white, you know, the, the atmospheric cinematography, and they really still tried yeah. to give them that universal look, even if they were not dealing with, with supernatural subjects. Well, exactly. And, and let's be honest. I mean, they were not spending a lot of money on no, these films. No. Uh, we're talking the standard budget for these was $150,000. Mm-hmm. That ain't a whole lot even back then. Yeah, yeah. And when you're talking about uh, these little beef beef features, they were filming them in about two weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't get much more than about 12 to 14 days top to bottom mm-hmm. to, you know, once the camera started to roll, that's that's what you had. 
You're mm. going to get it shot. And um, I, I'm always a little surprised when I go back to them to some of the stylistic flourishes that uh, mm -hmm. some of the directors yeah. were able to like mm -hmm. to actually get into these things. Yeah. Uh, these first two that we're going to examine tonight were directed by the same guy. Mm -hmm. uh, he, uh, as far as I can tell, was able to wedge. I mean, you could just watch the difference between the two of them. He was able to wedge a few more cool stylistic things into the first one, calling mm -hmm. Doctor Death, yeah. than he was able to get into Weird Woman. But I'll be honest, I don't think that really matters because I think Weird Woman has a more interesting story. I was going to say the exact thing, same thing. So, yeah. you know, take away with one hand and give with the other. Right. To well, it has a stronger source material to pull from, well, too, which yeah. we'll get into. But, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I want to say, can I say something about the introduction? The, 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 I want to say something about the head in the globe. The head in the globe. <laughs> yes, the head in the globe, which, and, did not, which did not go away, I think, until the last of the six films. Right. Yeah. And, by the way, if it helps with your visualization of our show to picture Rod and I's heads in globes here, just, just floating in globes, talking while we're doing the show. That's Feel totally free. fine. Feel free. But anyway, okay, that always had particular resonance with me because when I was a kid, and I may have talked about this, I feel like at some point in one of our earlier podcasts years ago, I mentioned this at some other reason, but in Gatlinburg, when we'd go as a family, there was, in believe it or not, all places, conservative Gatlinburg, Tennessee, there was a attraction called the Witchcraft Museum. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I mentioned this before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Loved it as a kid. I always insisted we go to the Witchcraft Museum because I was a twisted little, you know, twisted, <laughs> twisted little, little sick yes, bastard. Yes, I was. So because there was some pretty, pretty. Uh, it's hard to imagine even a place being allowed. It wasn't allowed very long to go by that name. But the fact that, you know, you went in and they had like some pretty risque and pretty gruesome, grim tableaus in there. I mean, they had oh, okay. like you know depictions of you know human sacrifices. You know, they had like big, great <laughs> giant statues of you know of Lucifer with his big you know goat head in there, and they had uh, they had actually a naked witch. <laughs> did, they, did they name him Beelzebub? Wait, <laughs> wait, you said naked witch. A naked witch. I mean, it was like something oh. right out of a Nashi film, and there was just this fully naked witch statue in there. You know, this attractive young you know. Which and, and and you know I was I was very young, but uh, they certainly uh, I wasn't sure with why it exuded such a fascination upon me, but I certainly <laughs> stayed and stared at you her figured, for quite a while. You, you figured it out eventually, I'm sure. Yes, but what drew me in, now after a few years, they uh, it didn't last long under that name, and certain sure enough, pressure groups caused them to change the title to the Museum of the Unexplained. They kept a lot of the the same exhibits, but they then folded in like a more uh, cryptozoology kind of things, you know, Bigfoot oh, and UFOs okay. and things like that into it. They got uh, Leonard Nimoy to re to read a narration for it, and so you had you'd go through it with Leonard Nimoy's voice, you know, narrating the. Therefore, therefore, kind of know. linking it to in search of. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. So but anyway, uh, what was going for is the thing that really exuded the most fascination over me that just hypnotized me most was they had this globe with this little witch's floating witch's face in there that would talk to you <laughs> you know this repeated like film loop of this woman with witch makeup and saying all these creepy things and hissing at you and spitting at you and you know and on this table like this crystal ball and creeped the hell out of me which means i loved it being like the yeah. kid i was i was just like you know i love the fact that this is terrifying me and i can't get enough of it and i would sometimes just you know my parents would drop me off at the Witchcraft Museum to hang out for a while while they went and did their because that's the awesome parents <laughs> while they I scooted, had. That's, while they scooted away. Yeah, that, that I would go in there and just stand there forever watching this loop, this film loop of this witch play over and over again, and and I'd give anything to see that again, and I'd love to just know who that woman was playing the witch because she did a great job, but very creepy. So anyway, I never can see these without thinking of you know thinking of that because because of the intro. Um, uh, the actor uh, I, I've got his name on here somewhere I believe uh, that that. Uh, uh, the the head in the globe, but anyway, because he did actually acted, played some actual parts in some other Universal films. Yes, David Hoffman. Yeah, David Hoffman. Yes, uh, 
Uh, and he and they they, they kind of ripped him off, I think, because they used the same piece. <sighs> and probably didn't pay him for each time. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I don't think they paid him five times. I think he got paid one good time. Yep, yep. And then we just yeah. used it over and over again. Yeah, so. yeah. But anyway, I'm probably the only maybe the only person in the world who watches these films and makes that association that that uh, that, that that actually find that whole intro thing with David Hoffman rather rather setting a great mood because of the way it makes him reminds me of the the <laughs> witch from the old witchcraft museum years ago. <laughs> This is the inner sanctum, the strange, fantastic world, controlled by a mass of living, pulsating flesh, the mind. It destroys, distorts, creates monsters, commits murder. Yes, even you. And just to say real quick, if anybody wants any, some of, at least a little bit of the visuals from the Witchcraft Museum, that you can find a reproduction of the brochure for it out there on the internet. If you Google Witchcraft Museum Gatlinburg, and you will see a little picture of that witch in the globe, and you, you'll see it. Actually, get a little view of the naked witch, too. So, <laughs> Good to know. Yes. Um... Because there's no porn on the internet. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> well, just to uh, get us started into the first of the two films, uh, let's start talking about the one that came out in 1943. Mm-hmm. Right at the end of 1943, Calling Dr. Death, the first of the series. Um, I have to say, I've always enjoyed this film, but I understand every criti- critique that mm-hmm. is leveled at it. I mm-hmm. really do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say this, just as a generality... I was unprepared for uh, what I was going to encounter when I started digging into the general critical, com- the, 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 the fan criticism, the stuff I would say that has been produced in the past 30 to 40 years, uh-huh. the writing about these mm-hmm. particular films. I was, unex- I, was, I was unprepared and just totally unexpecting the level of vitriol that's directed at some of these movies hmm. by some writers, hmm. uh, to the point where there are some cases where... Uh, They'll spend four to five paragraphs just ripping the film to shreds in various and sundry ways, and then in the in the piece with a couple of paragraphs, kind of faintly praising it and, and saying they kind of enjoy it, and me thinking to myself, I think the emphasis is on the wrong syllable <laughs> on, on the way you're talking about this film. Yeah. But here here's here's the thing. I uh, it's it's not that uh, it's not that you can't find people who write about these films that do actually seem to enjoy them mm-hmm. and seem to have a, a pretty clear eyed view of the faults of them. Mm-hmm. Um, to to be, to be clear, let's let's be clear, let's be upfront. The Inner Sanctum films are variable in quality. There are some really really good ones, mm-hmm. and a couple that are not as good by any stretch of the imagination. And the thing is, depending on who you're talking to, people who are <laughs> who yeah. are conversant with all six of them. Mm-hmm. They almost always end up finding ways to pick different ones as being the best. Mm, I'm sure, yeah. That makes sense, actually. Now, I'll be clear. I think... Uh, I, I really do enjoy four or five of them quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And then there are a couple that I think are not as good. We'll talk about them as we go, but I'm going to say I enjoyed both of the films we talk about tonight. The first one, I think, Calling Dr. Death, is strong if with some inherent weaknesses that mm-hmm. you, yeah. you, you kind of have to admit to mm-hmm. or give mm-hmm. the film uh, mm-hmm. as you uh, get to the pieces that you enjoy. Yeah. For instance, let's talk about the uh, 
pencil mustachioed gorilla <laughs> in the room. Lon Chaney Jr. is a hard, bitter, yeah. barbed pill for a lot of viewers to swallow. Yeah. yeah in these definitely, roles, definitely. he comes off as a, a a bruiser who's attempting to play something that he's just not suited to. Yeah. And I get it. Yeah. I do think that he pulls it off enough in enough of the scenes in each of the films mm-hmm. for me to give it to him. Mm-hmm. Is it is it perfect casting? No. No. No, it's not. But just to go ahead and talk about it at the beginning, uh, the, I think he has the pencil-thin mustache in all of these films. I can't remember now, but he definitely like does he in both. Yeah. yeah, he definitely does in this one. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that mustache and the suits the, that they put him in are supposed to get us over the hump of forgetting that this this guy's Lawrence Talbot Lawrence Talbot really I mean this is this is the Wolfman no matter how many how many ways you want to stretch it out of shape and he's just this big brute of a guy who doesn't always seem to be able to pull these more sophisticated characters off yeah yeah the other thing Mm -hmm. that we should probably talk about. And this doesn't turn up in every one of the films, but it's something we've got to talk about a little bit, especially in Calling Dr. Death, is the voiceover. The voiceovers, yeah. Yeah. I would say you either love or hate the voiceover, but that's not necessarily true, because I think that uh, I've never been completely against voiceover at all. There are some people who are adamant that the minute you start using voiceover to tell your story, Mm -hmm. you have failed. Yeah, no, no, I don't agree with that. I I, I think voiceovers can be effective. One of the biggest controversies of all time is like with Blade Runner. Of course. Yes, I do think Blade Runner is overall better without the voiceover, but... I've never had a problem with the voiceover. I think it's well written. I think it actually adds to the uh, kind of noir-esque sort of feel of the film. You right. know, it's actually so. I've never, I never had a problem with the voiceover. You know, even though, like I said, yeah, okay, watching them both now, I can kind of see how. Well, how do you better. feel about the voiceover in Calling Doctor Death? Yes. Though? Um, yeah, because that was one of the questions, and it's fun to play with because you go into it, and, and 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 I wanted to say like my big question myself was, did this film need it at all? You know, could it? Could you have told this story without? The voiceovers, and apparently Cheney Jr. requested, requested it, he, yeah. he didn't. He felt it was too much dialogue to have to, you know, work around, and and wanted the voiceovers. And sometimes voiceovers and thoughts, you know, self thinking to yourself. I mean, that is a convention of radio dramas a lot of times for obvious reasons. And here they were based on radio dramas. Well, I mean, this well, wasn't okay, pulling yeah. from it. Yeah, this this one in particular was not taken from an actual well, radio none, drama. None, none, of the, none of the six films. So none of them are. Okay, no, I wasn't no, no, sure they, about they, that. They were I knew, not allowed. I knew we the first should, two uh, Yeah, we should be up front about this uh, before we go too far, which is that Universal Studios, public, uh, they, they, they purchased the rights to the series name Inner Sanctum. But we're not allowed because the Inner Sanctum was a massively popular radio show. Supernatural and macabre stories, mm-hmm. often horror stories, mm-hmm. uh, just re- really great. If you if you have any uh, love of old time radio, Inner Sanctum is a a wonderful well to pull from because there's mm-hmm. just a joy mm-hmm. in discovering how good these stories could be. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really good ones. Uh, highly recommend the the radio version of Inner Sanctum. Big thumbs up. Mm-hmm. Love it. But they were not allowed in these in this film series to use any of the things that were staples of mm. the Inner Sanctum radio show. Okay. The first of which would be uh, they couldn't use any of the stories that they had wow. uh, they had uh, used on the radio show. They couldn't mine the radio shows for uh, for material. They also were not allowed to use 
the the biggest uh, audio cue that told people for years that the inner sanctum was on the air, which was the, this wonderful creaking door sound, mm. which uh, which was the the thing that started the show, and they would even reference verbally as uh, you know behind the creaking door. Mm. So they weren't at, or they weren't allowed to use the the kind of trademark thing that told people who were fans of the radio show that yes, this is definitely an inner sanctum story. So. They were kind of starting off with, you know, one foot in a hole, yeah, and yeah. then having to find a way to get on on solid ground mm-hmm. and, and and walk forward. And I think they may have, you know, they may have done as good a job as they could with the fact that uh, they were they were fairly limited in what they were uh, able to pull from. But this first story was an original story. The, mm-hmm. It was an original screenplay. They 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 bought and uh, turned into an inner sanctum story, and. I think it works. It works as an inner sanctum story because there were plenty of episodes of the radio show that uh, you know, where, where it turned out that you know that where there weren't even hints necessarily of, of supernatural things, uh, just you know crime and mystery mm-hmm. and murder and mm-hmm. all the things that go along with that. And of course, in this film, we're definitely talking about murder. We even have a murderer who turns out to be psycho enough to want to disfigure the the, mm-hmm. the victim. Mm-hmm. So while the inner sanctum was a good brand name. Universal really kind of weren't, they weren't able to take advantage uh, fully of it. Okay, okay, well good. Well, thanks, Phil, because I wasn't sure about that with the history of that. But, um, so, so the voiceover question then, I felt like, okay, you can't take the voiceover, you can't take it out of the film now as it's filmed because there's too many scenes of him sitting there and just, you know, rolling his eyes up and thinking about to himself, you know, with the the voiceover. Lighting lighting a cigarette slowly. Yeah. yeah. But I think that uh, uh, there are definitely things that I think could have been shown visually in a way or conveyed through a few lines of dialogue a few you know just that I think you know it didn't it didn't need it from the first but I know even when I was watching it even when I was young and watching it for the very first time you know there were some times when it just got to be a little too much for me you know like the points where he's thinking about you know you know I've always thought mankind was oh yeah two steps forward and one step back but maybe it's one step forward, two steps, two steps back. back, and even as I was like, "Come on, you know, it's just." It oh, like, I know, I know. This it's, is getting it, too much. When know? we get into the philosoph- philosophical yeah. BS, mm-hmm. where he's talking to himself, it's it, 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 that's when it starts to spin its wheels a bit. Mm-hmm. And luckily, there isn't a lot of that, but there's enough of it where I understand one of the standard critiques of this film, mm-hmm. which is that the first twenty minutes or so are a little slow. Yeah, and yeah. that's where a lot of the voiceover crap is yeah. in this film, where it's this. This um, it, it's it, it's information dump via voiceover, mm. and that can often feel mm. like sloppy writing or or clumsy writing, where we're getting all of this stuff in a voiceover instead of it being portrayed. I mean, we are mm. films a visual medium. Come on, show yeah. don't tell. Yeah, but uh, the, the that that to me, I, I I'm perfectly okay with the voiceover. Mm-hmm. It doesn't bother me so much. Uh, I kind of get a kick out of it because I, as a stylistic choice, it's always mm-hmm. been something from you know crime, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, other kinds of crime films yeah. that I've kind of always enjoyed. Uh, except this does have one element that always gets on my nerves, which is, and I've talked about this before, mm-hmm. whisper talking. <laughs> yes, right. Well, Whisper talk. Yes, that's do, what the entire voiceover sounds like. Do any of us ever whisper talk our thoughts to ourselves? No. 
mostly we scratch and bitch. <laughs> scratch and bitch all more day like long. We're more like they're screaming inside our heads than we oh, are. Oh, I know. <laughs> we're, we're mostly mentally pacing back and forth and going, oh, God, what have I done to myself? Yeah. But, but that's not what we get here. We get the whisper talking voiceover. Yeah. I, I do think uh, when I compared the two, I felt like the voiceovers in Dr. Death, that there's a little bit more of a purpose that some of it serves then in, in, in Weird Woman, I thought Weird Woman, it really yeah. was unnecessary. And yeah. that I think I thought there's some place in Weird Woman where he thinks something to himself that's immediately afterwards shown through somebody saying something or through something visual that they right. could have just left like that. So, But yeah, I'm like you. I mean, in general, voiceovers don't, narration does not bother me. So in general, it was not just like a deal killer for these films either. I, I'm with you. I, I it's not it's, it doesn't it doesn't kill the film for me. It does take me out of it just a little bit because I'm always thinking, that's not how I think to myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nor do I light up a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, there it. there's that either. This film does kind of bend itself in the direction of. Uh, I mean, there is never a, a, a sense that this film is going to suddenly turn out to be somewhat horrific. Mm, yeah. That is not what. Mm. That's not what where it goes. But it is enough of a mystery, I have to admit, especially the first time you see it, that you're not exactly sure who actually is the killer. Right. Uh, the film hides the ball pretty well. It does. Um, of course, once you've seen the film, you, you do remember who... I mean, unless it's been years since you last mm -hmm. saw it. Mm -hmm. You remember who the killer is. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that the film does play fair. I think and, so, too. Yeah, when you, go through, when you go through it with the knowledge of who the killer is, mm -hmm. the movie's not trying to do something stupid. No. It's not trying to make you think something and leading you down uh, the path with false clues and things that you have to ignore on second viewing. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, uh, I think what we'll do is we'll uh, we'll take a run through this. Uh, we, I've got a good I've got a good uh, synopsis here. Okay. And what we'll do is uh, as we go along, we'll discuss some of the cast and crew as well. But uh, this is this will be this will be instructive because I think this will take us through it pretty well. Cool. This is from the uh, '40s Universal Monsters uh, Critical Commentary chapter on Calling Doctor Death from 1943. Dr. Mark Steele is a renowned neurologist who frequently uses hypnotism in his treatments. He is unhappily married to the beautiful but cruel Maria, who despises him, but who enjoys the prestige of being married to a famous doctor. Steele and his nurse Stella have a mutual attraction, but Steele doesn't see a way out of his marriage to Maria. Now, we should, of course, state up front that Mark Steele is Lon Chaney Jr. Mm -hmm. One Saturday night, while brooding over his life situation... Steele drives aimlessly around and then blacks out. He awakens on Monday in his office with no memory of the past 48 hours. The police are now all jokes about Lon Chaney Jr.'s drinking. <laughs> yes, insert, make them now. In, insert them, them here. Yeah. Well, the police arrive to inform him that Maria, his wife, has been found dead in their country lodge, their kind of weekend house, beaten with a poker and disfigured by acid. Inspector Greg, the the character in charge of the murder case, uh, Inspector Greg, by the way, is played uh, by the great wonderful. Yeah. J. Carroll Nash. Yes. Suspects Steele, of course. You always suspect the husband. Yes. But then arrests Robert Duvall, an architect who was having an affair with Maria. It's our mad ghoul. I know. It is the it is the actor we last saw in The Mad Ghoul uh -huh. as The Mad Ghoul. <laughs> Playing yet another just complete victim of circumstance. Not only did the actor never catch a break, but neither did his characters. <laughs> yeah, I, I swear. Uh, 
those uh, uh, those Stella, that's the uh, the nurse, mm-hmm. uh, Mark Steele's nurse, tries to convince him otherwise. Steele can't be certain that he didn't commit the murder during his blackout over the weekend. Making matters worse, Greg continually needles Steele, uh, Steele trying to make him confess. Uh, Greg, the cop, I, the J. Carroll Nash character is great. He is. He's awesome. Duvall, uh, and by this time, Duvall has been found guilty of Maria's murder and has been sentenced to death. Steele becomes increasingly frantic as the time for Duvall's execution moves closer. When a mysterious fire in his office destroys all of his his, uh, office records, Steele begins to suspect Stella, although the movie doesn't really let you in on that. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. He starts to play around with the idea, and it's clear that he feels the shackles are off once his wife is dead, regardless of his possible guilt in the in the murder, because he has no he has no memory of what happened that weekend. But uh, he does he does start to obviously think in the direction of well, I can't actually now act on the mutual attraction between my nurse and myself. So you start to see him thinking in that direction without actually taking any action. Mm-hmm. And then the night that Duvall is going to be executed, uh, because boy, there's just plenty of circumstantial evidence that that poor bastard, that poor bastard did it. Mm-hmm. Um, he starts to get nervous enough to want to try to hypnotize himself and see if he could bring out any memories, something that he probably should have done a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, but this this synopsis has left out that poor Duvall's wife, because Duvall was married too. Yeah, that's right. Uh, has uh has come has come to steal and has asked him. She's a will will wheelchair bound woman too. So she's she there's yeah. that that much more yes I know. guilt like laid along to Doctor Steele mm. about his possible his possible guilt in this mm. entire situation and the possibility that Duval might be actually innocent. Mm. So this just increases his guilt, increases his his worry, and so since uh, the night that the execution is supposed to happen. And it's actually, uh, it's weird. I, I, I don't know about this kind of thing, but uh, this execution is supposed to take place at like five in the morning? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Yeah, I think that's sort of the impression. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's this thing where, so they, they uh, they're, both he and his nurse are so nervous that they're, mm-hmm. that they're up all night and they go back to the office because they can't, they can't think of any place else to go. And they're, mm-hmm. he, that's when he decides to try uh, to hypnotize himself. And there, you know, there are all these weird things going on. The the way in which the fire was started in his office is mm-hmm. really weird. And so he acts as he, he essentially hypnotizes himself and has his nurse record the session. He often mm-hmm. records the session he ha- sessions he has with his uh, his patients. And when he comes out of this, he uh, is told by his nurse that you've got to you've got to listen to you've got to listen back to this. You 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 really did. Mm-hmm. You've honestly done this. You, you you said that you remember seeing Duvall mm-hmm. going into the house as you drove away. Mm-hmm. There, there, you know, it, it it really was him. But here's the best part to me. This is when we learn that he has been kind of wondering about Stella, and he uses his pocket watch mm-hmm. to hypnotize her mm-hmm. and get her to spill the beans about the fact that she had a deal going with Duvall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they were they were criminal business partners trying to get uh, essentially what both of them want, uh, both money and uh, well, our little nurse here, Stella, did definitely want the good old doctor to be uh, be bedmates. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, 
It, it comes. It, it all comes out there, and of course, what happened was Duvall though did actually end up falling yeah. in love for real with Stella. Right. I mean, not with Stella, but oh, with, but, but, uh, but with, with, um, with, um, with Maria. The, yeah, with Maria. Sorry. Yeah. So he he wanted to back out of it. He wanted to, he he wanted to change his mind, and so uh, <laughs> the 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 evil that women can do uh-huh. does once again uh-huh. creep into one of these murder mystery stories. Yes. Uh, how how often these stories revolve around bad women doing bad things with and murders. Yes. You know, well, <laughs> with pokers and acid, apparently. Yeah. 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 So. I have to admit, this is, uh, th- of course, then, we, then, then of course, uh, Inspector Greg comes in, has mm-hmm. overheard the entire thing, and the cuffs go on and all as well. But there are a number of things in this movie. I, I do enjoy this movie. Mm-hmm. I agree mm-hmm. it gets off to a slower than mm-hmm. a slower start mm-hmm. than necessary. Mm-hmm. It does. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pretend. But at the same time, it it always holds my interest. It really does. Mm-hmm. And some of it, okay, I'll admit. Is a bit of a tra- it is a bit of me watching to see if the the train's going to come off the tracks this time <laughs> with either uh, Lon Chaney's uh, mm. performance mm-hmm. uh, or whether or not he's going to be uh, he's going to um, I, 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 essentially am I going to spot one of those moments where I go oh wow he's just really not pulling this off mm-hmm. or do I actually just get pulled along because I like these kinds of stories and it's and it's brief it's an hour and three minutes long yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's only got to hold my attention and hold yeah. itself together logically for that short a space of time and to my mind that it you know to my mind it does yeah it crams a lot of story in the hour there and it, but yeah. it manages to, to unfold it you know pretty well I think you know it, it, it ties it all up pretty well. And and the uh, the angle of I'm always the angle of hypnotism is always fun. That was kind of a faddish thing at yeah. that time for films. It's just kind of right there with uh, seances and that sort of thing. It was just part yeah, of that whole you know yeah. you don't really see much of hypnotism about these days or hear much about it. But at that time, it was really definitely kind of a topic that people thought about a lot and certainly found a lot of, of grist for movie movie stories in. And so the so the hypnotism angle is 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 is, is fun and, and you know and very much a part of this time. I always chuckle at the very opening scene where we see him yes. practicing his craft and he's put a, a girl who who has lost the ability to speak and he's put her under hypnotism. And when he wakes her up, he just slaps her awake. And I'm just sitting there thinking, is that really the method there? I kind of what happened to the old uh, finger when I, Yeah, it's like um, <laughs> it's always, I know, but it's perfectly, but it's perfectly in line with what we talk about. Cheney Jr.'s just brusque character, even when he's trying to be Mister Suave. It's just that that brute comes through sometimes. I know. It's like, <laughs> I mean, are we supposed to just be thankful he didn't backhand her? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I know. Just one, you know, one slap to get her conscious. It's like I, I guess I'd come out of it as well. <laughs> now, as a little bit of an aside here, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but um, originally when they announced these Inner Sanctum movies, they were going to be a two-hander yeah. in every case with both Lon Chaney Jr. and Gail Sondergaard, yeah, who yeah. just been signed to the studio. That did not work out for various mm. reasons. Mm. Uh, I do now look at all of these films and think mm. to myself, well, what would have been the role yeah. they yeah. would have given to Gail Sondergaard? And if you're going to have her as well in every one of these films, then how would they balance it to when, you know, you'd have to balance it to where sometimes she's going to have to be the red herring and sometimes she can be the, you know, the villainous. But right. I, in this film, yeah, it's true because, you know, we love Gail Sondergaard and we just raved about her in the, the film That's, we just recently yeah. did, The Spider, the Spider Woman. Woman. Yeah. But she was so delicious at playing powerful and, and, and sometimes evil and, and, you know, just strong women. Right. You know, because you're thinking she's either she would either have to be his wife who would have to get a, a expanded role, really, to justify or she'd or have to be would, Stella. Or, or, would it, or would it have been the, the big surprise that 
you know, would it have been a psycho-like surprise to have Gail Sondergaard get off to get the first Get off early act? in the well, and that's, well, there's that too. That's I mean, that, possible. That, because that because personality-wise, nice. I can picture, it's hard for me to picture her as Stella. It is. Without you, Patricia Morrison is very good uh, in, as Stella in this. And, Patricia and, Morrison is fantastic. But she's just kind of, like, mild enough that yes. it doesn't, you don't tweak to where Gail Sondergaard is not mild, you know, and I no. feel like you would just start looking at her a little too much. I think early on, you know, but you're right. As, I mean, yes, yeah, certainly she could have played the the character of the wife perfectly. But like you said, you know, do we just have that few scenes with her in this case? And then and maybe that puts everybody then on edge for the whole rest of the series. Like, what are they going to do with her? Is she going to be here and gone? Is she going to be the, the villainous? Is she going to be a heroine? It would, it would have been interesting to see which direction they had gone. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I will say this. She, there's only one other real female character in the film, and that's... Uh, the the the, the wheelchair bound right. wife of Duvall, mm-hmm. played mm-hmm. by Faye Helm, who's who's very good, yeah. and I don't think they would have put Gail Sondergaard in that role I at all. I don't think so either. So, yeah. uh, by the way, while we mention it, Faye Helm, where, where did we last see Faye Helm uh, in our in our forty series? I recognized the name. I did. And I even recognized her myself, but I don't. Well, she, she she played Miss Fuddle in all the Blondie films. Oh my God! Oh no! Wait, we didn't cover the Blondie. Yeah, films. we didn't. Yeah, right. but, but I have seen some of those. I will admit. I've I never seen one. Of the, I've never seen, seen the Blondie, of the Blondie films. films but I, yeah. I have to eventually one day. Yeah. I've never seen those or the Mon Pa Kettle films. Yeah, or, well, those of yeah, those 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 I don't. I'm not a big Mon Pa. Well, Faye Helm, we last. Well, she was uh, she was Jenny, the first victim in the Wolfman. Oh yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, she was also uh, in Night Monster. Oh yeah, yeah. And also, small role, Captive Wild Woman. Okay, so three so, times we've already seen her before this. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I got up on the wrong foot with the Mon Pa Kettle films because that was what they replaced the Abbott and Costello films with on Ooh. Sunday. Every Sunday there would be an Abbott and Costello film for months, and then they start showing yeah. Mon Pa Kettle, and I was really mad to, uh, to 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 not have the Abbott and Costello film. So I probably. I, I I probably did not give them a fair shake. They're probably more they're probably more entertaining than I give them credit for. But I I just didn't know. Maybe I, I had a vendetta, you know, and so I, I didn't didn't watch them. Yeah, I was I've I've always stayed away from them because I spent a lot of years kind of stri- trying to stay away from that type of humor because mm-hmm. I was just so enveloped in it with the with the with hee haw when I was growing up. <laughs> yeah. It was just like I don't need any more of this crap. Yeah. A little I mean, too close to home. Yeah, it's like, like, it's like we live in this country. It's like I'm we, trying yeah. to I'm trying to pretend that I don't live in Tennessee. <laughs> you know? It's like we really know some of these people and we'd rather not, <laughs> not be to, reminded of Yeah, yeah I, I don't I have to deal with enough of these morons. They're not I don't find them entertaining. I find them to be a hurdle that I have to surmount. Right. Let's just get around these idiots and move on but regardless so I, I, I too wonder I think Gail Sondergaard probably would have been in the Maria role so that you got that that shock but yeah. who knows I mean maybe they would have found a way to make her Stella I, mm-hmm. I don't know you gotta say uh, just want to say right here just Jay Carroll Nash if we can talk about him for just a he's second. great he's, so good he's, he's Columbo before Columbo oh yeah he's just so good in this and he was he was truly just like one of the most chameleon like versatile actors you know he was and, and the funny thing about him you know he was Irish but I think he only played an Irishman once you know because he, oh, yeah. he had a swarthy complexion so he played every other kind of nationality and accent but only played an Irishman once but he's but I mean he's so like you know we'll see him soon uh, when we do House of Frankenstein we'll see him and Cheney Jr. Again, sure. together sure. again and he's as completely different as Daniel the hunchback in that film as you could possibly be from the detective that he plays here well, the uh, the joys for me of watching J. Carroll Nash is he uh, 
he probably gives the best performance in the film. He's very much underplaying it because mm-hmm. he he he's it's specific to the type of role as it, as it is written. Is he's this guy who is going, uh, he's going around needling the person that you you think he thinks is the murderer. But he's trying to stay one or two steps ahead of what's going on because he's trying to figure out how he's going to actually just nail whoever actually is guilty. And uh, it's 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 a fun it's a it's a fun role. It's kind of a showy role. And uh, but I will say, the his his final few lines of dialogue just suck. <laughs> just, I've never never <laughs> yeah. liked those last like few lines he, of dialogue. Yeah, it's it's a, just it's not a fitting farewell to that yeah, great character. It's, yeah, it's it's a. Uh, I've tried to like that dialogue that he has, mm-hmm. once you know once things are being wrapped up and that phone call comes in taking him to his next murder scene. Mm-hmm. It's just like, nah, it's a little too bad. That needed that yeah, that dialogue like, needed to rewrite real hard. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's just it's like oh, there's a murder. I'm off, you know. Well, it's it's it's, kind of just... it's this you know world weary mm-hmm. BS that just it, it doesn't come off. Yeah, it's it's not it needed it needed better writing. Um, I, now, did you? I also felt like they they were trying to set him up as a potential suspect too. I mean, did you ever get that? Because to me, like, there's even the line early the on. The cop. Yeah, to me, even because there's a line oh, wow. early on because no, he because he that. is so far ahead of them, at so many steps ahead, and the fact that he he's needles because he does needle Cheney Jr. so yeah. much, and because he seems to know so much. And there's that time point there when some Cheney Jr. I think asked him did you know did you know my wife and he doesn't answer he just grins at him and, and that I thought oh, was I thought they were dropping oh, that well, in to okay, just yeah, add remember, him as yeah. another suspect I, I remember what were, you're yeah. talking about now yeah. no, it, it never it, maybe it maybe it's just because I've seen the damn movies so many times mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but though that never occurs because you know I usually I usually remember well no it didn't turn out to be the cop uh-huh. uh, but yeah um, no that's interesting I, I'd forgotten about that they do kind of uh, pitch that as a possibility, even it's very faint. You're yeah, right. right. It's not. Know. Yeah, it was not. And I and and also too, I just have to say that uh, uh, Nash and J. Carroll Nash and Lon Chaney Jr. appeared again in a film that I we will probably never you'll probably never hear us discuss. Unfortunately, on this show is the iconic Dracula versus Frankenstein, the uh, <laughs> Al Adamson masterpiece you know, that Rod refuses to. You know, uh, uh, I, I, my my resolve on that is starting to break. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that I may have to eventually revisit that horrendous film <laughs> from 1971. Yes, that's right. And uh, ch- check it out again and see if my memories are uh, <laughs> are as accurate as I fear that they will turn out to be. <laughs> so, you know, you might be able to talk me into that one. I've got to admit, uh, uh, I'm never going to see Grunt, the, the wrestling movie. I know, I know. But that's what you, you would watch. You would do that one. You would do Gratula oh, versus Frankenstein before you'd cover Grunt. Oh, God, right? yes. God, yes. <laughs> I actually give a damn about horror characters. I couldn't give two craps about wrestling morons. I mean, if they're if they're not Santo or the Blue Demon, I don't. If their native language isn't Spanish, I don't want to. I don't want to know. I don't. I don't care at all. Well, I want to say something here about two mystery conventions in this story that, um, or or plot devices that, one one actually did ha- have me going for a little bit, and one just totally went by me, but. In the the when I watched these on DVD, like I said, when I got that DVD set, and it's the first time I'd seen them, you know, since since I watched them on TV, so I'd forgotten most everything about the actual plots. Right. Um, so when the when it's revealed that Stella not only was you know bludgeoned but had acid thrown all over her face, my first thought was going to be that it wasn't her, that the body that the face was oh. disfigured. 
You're thinking Laura. Yes, exactly. Thinking that it was actually uh, somebody, another body and substitute, you know, of hers was the other thing. Now, one that I never caught to, and I wondered, I just wanted to ask you, did this occur to you at all? Is it's a mystery, and they introduce a character in a wheelchair, and I'm really surprised at oh, myself yeah. that it didn't once didn't yeah. once think like, oh, nobody is actually crippled in a mystery. They're always end up being <laughs> that they can actually walk in there. The killer. They're always faking it. Didn't didn't occur to me at all, actually. That yeah, you're right. Because it could have been. They could have been yeah. Duvall's wife. I mean, it could have been. Certainly, she has every she's reason got in the, the world. Motive. And I wonder if they if they wanted us to possibly see her as a suspect and just never went totally over my head. I never thought of her as a potential. Oh wow, you know that's so weird that I, did, I even with all the reading I've been doing about these two films the past week, this is this is you're right. It just did not. Uh, mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think maybe that even if it did get mentioned in anything that I was reading, it just it, it, it it's always it's always been an obvious uh-huh. thing that wasn't true because I've seen the movie too uh-huh. many times. But right. you're right; that is a standard movie, you know, especially murder mystery convention to throw mm-hmm. that kind of thing in. I mean, we just last saw it in what the Night Monster for mm-hmm. God's sake, yeah, where right. you know, well, it can't mm-hmm. be the cripple. Yeah. <laughs> well, guess what? Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, a couple of things. If we're going to talk about movie conventions, a couple of things that I want to throw out there is. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it's very weird that we never have a have a real strong sense, and there's no nothing is is never delved into at all. Why was Doctor Mark Steele blacked out for the entire weekend? Yes, because when you said that, when you were just reading that in the plot again, it came to me again. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's like yeah, I don't think that yeah, because there's not. I mean, yeah, yeah, because he, he wasn't he hypnotized was, before then. He wasn't, he wasn't drugged. He, he wasn't, wasn't hypnotized or drugged, and he had apparently he, he does uh, he does not appear to have been drunk. This yeah. was, this was not some kind of lost weekend where he wakes up in a pool of his own vomit. He's mm-hmm. been you know he's been on a bender for two days. That's not the impression that we get at all. So it is this weird mystery about well, just what the hell caused this bizarre memory loss? Was it just the trauma of his of of mm-hmm. you know of having yeah. this confrontation with his wife? But. Yeah, boy, that's a really yeah, man, very good, very good question there. I, that's that's I had. Uh, you're right. I, there was not an explanation that I can think of. If if anybody out there listening, you know, can catch something we missed, please let us know. But yeah, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not here. I don't think, think it's it, ever addressed or brought up again. It's just, just so past, it's a little too. It's almost yeah. a little too convenient. To, it, yeah, exactly. And it's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that the movie wisely uh, convinces you to just ignore and move on. Yeah, <laughs> right. But the uh, one of the other things is uh, as great as the J, as J. Carroll Nash is. I mean, he, he's easily mm-hmm. one of the best foils that Cheney has throughout the entire run of the series. He's yeah. fantastic. But I have to ask, uh, just how often do the police allow the husband of a murdered wife just to 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 walk on in and 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 take a look at the body? <laughs> I, I'm just I'm really curious about you know we 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 are about to accuse mm-hmm. him. Let, let, Let's be clear here. Yeah. It usually is the husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it and really is in real life. Yeah. And by the way, we'll leave you here to pick up any clues that we might have missed that we can. Yeah, like including, cuff including, including, like, including a button. Uh, buttons, yeah. yes, buttons, yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the cops are rather uh, laissez-faire about this mm-hmm. whole. Yeah, wander on around. I mean, we don't give a shit. Maybe it's because you know he's a doctor. He's seen this before. You know? <laughs> well, there's that. Uh, yeah. So, so that's a weird one. Uh, one last. Uh, one last, I had not thought of that. Thanks. That's good. <laughs> I mean, it is true. It's one of those it's things. It's like, well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why? Maybe you have him stand in the doorway while somebody pulls the, mm-hmm. you know, pulls the uh, the sheet back to see what his reaction to the <laughs> yeah, body yeah. is. That's probably something I can imagine. But yeah. him walking over, kneeling down beside it, pulling yeah. back the thing himself along with the corner there. It's like, come on, dude, what the hell? <laughs> uh, I am amused, and I love this about uh, 
we, we often talk about Universal Land, and once you get into these contemporary set stories, you don't really get the kind of fun, you know, mm. where is the town of Frankenstein yeah. versus where is Viseria yeah. kind of thing yeah. going on. But I, I do I do always find it amusing to take note of the uh, the names of places that people go because they're trying to so carefully never nail down exactly what city all mm. of this is taking place in. Yeah. So these these places that they visit uh, where, where like the cabin is and where uh, Stella's uh, parents live and stuff mm. like that are things like Spring Lake. And Malcolm Falls. It's like nothing that would be an identifying no. name no. at all. These could be. This is like Springfield. It could be in any of the. It could be any of the lower forty-eight states. Any of them could have these locations. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So it's like, are we in Chicago? Who knows? Are we in New York? Yeah. Who knows? Are we in Boston? Don't know. It, but, but we're at Sunny Resort, dude. Whatever you know, like that kind yeah, of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sunny Resort. <laughs> we're at Sandy Beach. <laughs> Shell Beach. Which Shell is, Beach. Which Shell is Beach. My yes. favorite. My favorite kind of generic name yeah. that's you know bring, brings attention to itself in Dark City. But, yeah, you know, yeah. But you have this. Uh, these. Gen, gen, I, I just think of them as generic names. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we don't want to use the entire word generic. We should, it's a generic name. Throw it in there. <laughs> oh, and also, I think Mark Steele is one of my favorite. Oh, one of my oh, favorite. Yeah. Oh, I, I make Mark that. Steele. I make that joke about uh, exploitation, uh, European exploitation films in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, where you know they'll they're they're trying to concoct an American sounding name, mm-hmm. and it's always a one syllable first name, two syllable last name, <laughs> and uh, the, but with this, it's it's Mark Steele. <laughs> and it, it, it very much is supposed to, to it just, it's supposed to give the impression of a, of a very masculine, mm-hmm. in-charge yeah, right. kind of forceful fellow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he slaps around a teenage girl in the yeah. opening scene, so I guess maybe that's a good impression to give. But he's also supposed to be this, you know, this compassionate doctor mm-hmm. who's helping people with through hypnosis. At which, you know, I always, as soon as I, I, I know it was a big thing, and, and yes, hypnosis can be used in yeah, certain yeah. certain settings, uh, certain therapeutic settings to actually help people. I'm aware of this, mm-hmm. I know. But there was a long period of time, and the 40s were rife with it, when you, as soon as you started seeing somebody as a hypnotist, you're like, ah, oh, I see, that's uh, that's his field of medicine. No, man, he's probably a hack. Okay? <laughs> he probably did a mail order, got a little mail order brochure, you know. He's, yeah. He's through the, yeah. It's like if he, yeah. if he if he's claiming that he can help you with hypnosis, man, chances are good that he is just filching the wallet out of your pocket. <laughs> Something is wrong. Take note. It's like, yeah. are you are you leaving for a seance afterwards? What's the next thing that's going to bamboozle you just far enough to get you to donate cash? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hypnotism got a, hypnosis got a lot of leeway in, in films of this era. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> often, often with the, the whip, whispered voiceover. Is yes. <laughs> so uh, to 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 keep to, to keep this fairly short, I will just uh, I will just sum this up uh, mm-hmm. with a, with a, with a couple of uh, moments from Critics Corner. The motion picture Herald compared the film to the radio series. There is the same inconclusive psychiatric speculations, the same utter absorption by their characters in their personal lives and mental aberrations, and the same dependence upon dialogue. There's also the lengthy use of inner thought soliloquies. In this instance, they are those of Lon Chaney, caught in a peculiar mess indeed. Um, all of that, <laughs> all of that to say that they that this particular reviewer still felt that they tied it all together pretty well at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when should note that we, we've mentioned already Reginald LeBorg directed both of the films we'll mm-hmm. talk about tonight. Mm-hmm. He got a lot more leeway. He got to do a lot more stylistic, cool stuff in here, including yeah, a and good, there's some cool scenes. There, there's the POV shot yeah. when he's when uh, Lon Chaney's come, coming in to actually be shown the body of his yeah. wife there in the cabin, mm-hmm. where the camera actually takes on uh, t- takes on his POV, which is really mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. At one point, Stella is uh, when she's hypnotized. Yeah, she she actually has uh, these visions. These kind of very impressionalistic yeah. images, where like the buildings are starting to, to bend, yeah, bend kind of, into her. And you'd not expect that at all. That's a great. That's a great just like yeah. whoa, which because the you know because you've not seen anything like that in the film to this point. You know, uh-huh. it's, it's been and so yeah. Suddenly when those buildings just lean in towards, it's just like you're like whoa. Well, that's a, it catches you off it's guard. Really cool. It's a very neat moment. And also there's a there's a cool Dutch angle that there at the end when uh, uh, when he's uh, when our dear dear Mark Steele is. Uh, about to start trying to put questions to Stella. Mm-hmm. They're waiting for the for the uh, 5 a.m. call to come mm-hmm. that uh, Duvall has actually been executed. You get that weird Dutch angle shot from the floor up toward them, mm-hmm. giving you the giving you this uh, neat visual, this neat impression that okay, things are a little different now. Mm-hmm. I should be paying attention to mm-hmm. this because we're not shooting this yeah. straight on. Something's going on here. So there's some cool little stylistic things here that he was able to squeeze into the production. Mm-hmm. Uh, not as many in the second film, but we'll talk about mm-hmm. that in a minute. So mm-hmm. where do you come down on Calling Dr. Death? When we're done with all six of them, of course, we'll kind of look back at the right. entire series and, yeah. and, and yeah. give voice to what we think are the best and the worst. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you, we'll start with Calling Dr. Death. Uh, what do you feel the strengths and weaknesses of this one are necessarily? Um, I think one of the bigger strengths actually overall is, is Cheney's performance I thought is pretty good in this I mean as far okay. as like the strengths that kind of were maybe not necessarily expected I mean you expect J. Carol Nash to be always be, be great you know right. but I mean I think that I think one of the things that works strong for this is is and we'll see that as we talk about sometimes Cheney's just general persona and being kind of miscast can be a detriment to a point you know and I feel like in this film I think his character not only is his performance I think overall pretty good but I think that he's also his character. I think is fairly sympathetic too. I mean, that's and he doesn't always generate that. As we'll see with the next film, and all. But I think that, uh, to, in my opinion, anyway. But I think that he's. Yeah. Uh, but I think that. Uh, I think his character is actually pretty pretty sympathetic in this film. You know, I mean, I think you do kind of get invested in what's going on with him. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, uh, and I like some of those visual touches we talked about that were kind of right. d- d- unexpected. Um, so yeah, I, I actually uh, I found myself. You know, I do I do think this. Of this series, you know, it, it's it's each time I've seen it, you know, so this being counting the times that I watched it, uh, getting ready for this show, you know, it's it's uh, I think that these last times I watched it, I, my my opinion of it, I probably kind of lean between a six and a seven, you know, for it. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, I want to, and, and I, I I definitely, it's a film that I I don't I I think I probably would watch it again at some point. I mean, I can see myself. Maybe a while, but I can see myself coming back to sit down. Like you said, it's not a long time investment, and I think no. there's enough I like about it that I think I could enjoy, could enjoy seeing it. I was going to ask you. I know you have the Blu-ray, um, yeah, which I think has an audio commentary, and uh, yeah, there are audio commentaries for both these films. Yeah. Both, both of them are pretty darn informative. I, was, mm-hmm. I liked both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was not able. I wanted to spring for that set, but I didn't get a chance to before we start doing these. I still just got the DVD set, but uh, but yeah, I I, I, I think that. Uh, you know this film. This film's right. You know it really rose in my estimation every time I've seen it. So I, I, okay. I, it's one that I think I could recommend if somebody's a fan of old mystery film mysteries. You know I think I could recommend it. I would say that um, I'm glad I saw this film before I realized one little thing, which is that the guy who wrote it 
uh, also had a hand in crafting uh, the cat, uh, cat cat people for uh, Valut. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, he wasn't the only writer, but he was one of the people that was uh, that that uh, contributed to the screenplay. Also, uh, he 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 gets he gets credit for one of my favorite uh, little little uh, late fifties. I know I know a lot of people don't like it, but I do love Curse of the Undead, the vampire mm-hmm. western mm-hmm. from yeah, uh, 1959. Yeah. It's a fun one, yeah. Uh, and so I'm glad that I didn't know that before watching this film years ago. That I wasn't like you know having myself think down the cat people route mm-hmm. or the fun crazy route of mm-hmm. Curse of the Undead because this is kind of much more in between those mm-hmm. two. Yeah. But I still still get a kick out of it. This to me. Is uh, as it stands right now, this pass through them as mm-hmm. we as we're going through this, these films. This is one of my favorites of the series. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's the best, mm-hmm. but it is one that I, I I hold in high regard. And uh, what's weird is that over the years I have come to I don't know if it's just that all of them seeing them as many times as I have has kind of <laughs> kind of worn down my resistance mm-hmm. to the ones that I don't think are as good. Yeah. Uh, but I do kind of actually enjoy all six of them. It's going to mm-hmm. be interesting to see now that I'm you know we're we're going through them and kind of applying some real critical acumen to these to kind of kind of dig into them and think about them in yeah. in uh, terms of comparison. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this one I enjoy. Uh, it is. That's the scary thing. Is somewhere between a six and a seven, I do mm-hmm. get more joy out of it than I would for a film that I normally just think of as, you know, a little above average. Yeah, yeah. But uh, still, do do like the film. Do enjoy it. Think it's fun. Um, it was, it was. It, it, it's always a joy to go back to it because it's, mm-hmm. it's short. It's yeah. sweet. It's to yeah. the point. It, yeah. it, it gets its job done very effectively. Yeah. It's it's. It, don't get me wrong. There's a few clunker things in it, yeah. but overall, yeah. I do like it. Mm-hmm. Just to return really quickly to Critics Corner, I'd like to uh, like to read out a couple more of these. Oh, yeah. Uh, from uh, the New York Daily News, February 12, 1944, Dorothy Masters, two and a half stars. Had Director Reginald LeBorg been as masterful with his cast as he was with the script, Calling Dr. Death could have been a most promising introduction to Universal's new Inner Sanctum series. Plenty good enough for everyday consumption and likely to encourage an appreciable following. Okay. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Harrison's reports, December December eighteenth, nineteen forty three. It should prove a treat for the followers of this type of entertainment. For the identity of the murderer, the murderer is concealed so well that when it is finally divulged, it comes as a complete surprise. Hmm. So, like yeah. I say, the, yeah. the, the 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 one of the things that I've often uh, that I hate I hate to be this kind of a a curmudgeon, but I really do despise the type of modern day writing about older films that goes well everybody can immediately guess who the who the murderer is it's yeah. obvious from the get go and it's like no, no, no it's that, not no. stop with that BS yeah. you're not smarter than the mm. movie right yeah. maybe you can figure it out but mm. I guarantee you you didn't know who the murderer was in the first 20 minutes no. you're a lying piece of garbage <laughs> let's just uh, right yeah I get you I, 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 yeah, I get I, I get so angry at that kind of <laughs> that kind of joke. Well, anybody can figure out the murderer, really? Yeah, right. Really, uh, really? Did you sit down with a slide rule and, and mm, a computer and dope mm, it all out? I'm mm, just curious. Yeah. Nevertheless, uh, one more. Um, the New York Herald Tribune, February twelfth, nineteen forty four. Bert McCord. Mm-hmm. Now, see, there's yeah, a believable American yeah, man. Yeah, Bert McCord. I can see him as a mercenary out <laughs> in the can, jungle, yeah. <laughs> yeah. doing things, betting women. <laughs> 
Accustomed to arising early and having nothing to do in the morning, none of the soldiers or children at the opening of Calling Dr. Death at the Rialto yesterday walked out on the show, but their audible comments were quite, quite expressive of their attitude, which was one of utter boredom and occasional irritation. <laughs> that sounds like my little brother when we were watching these. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, he would try. He, he was, he was for his age, he was pretty, he loved horror movies and he loved old black and white horror movies and I give him credit, he would make it usually about halfway through the film before he'd finally just fade away back to his room to play with his, you know, micronauts or whatever, you know, yeah, right there, just, you know, his Transformers or, you know, it's just like, yeah, he just, once he copped it, there was not going to be... No monsters. Um, no monsters, he, yeah, so I can't blame him on that one. Well, one last one. I, I don't want to leave on a sour note, even uh. though it was amusing. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter, December 10th, 1943. Original LeBorg's direction is filled with imaginative touches and extracts a maximum of suspense from the psychological plot. Lon Chaney gives an arresting portrayal of the Doctor. Mm-hmm. And okay. uh, like I say, there's a lot, there's a lot of back and forth with with mm-hmm. e- with modern writers as well as to whether they they'll accept Lon Chaney in these roles or whether they won't. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm not against using the word miscast because I no, think that he is. He, but I think sometimes is. he he uh, he's able to overcome it well enough to make yeah. the films work yeah. with him as opposed mm-hmm. to in mm-hmm. spite of him. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll take a quick break. Okay. Come back and talk about Weird Woman. This is the Inner Sanctum. Thick stones, jungle gods. You don't know what you're doing. I do. I'm a no. Woman or witch, temptress or killer, weaving a death curse with the black magic of an ancient cult. Starring Lon Chaney, Anne Gwynn, Evelyn Ankers, with Lois Collier, Ralph Morgan, Elizabeth Risden, Elizabeth Russell. This house is full of something evil. Evil? Yes, it's you. I don't. Why are you terrorizing my wife? I don't even care anymore what people are saying, laughing at me. Oh, stop it. I never asked for such devotion from you, and I don't want it. Answers. Hello? Nineteen forty four's Weird Woman, the second of the Inner Sanctum films. Once again, we get the the, the head the head the, the head in the bowl or the, yeah. the head in the bowl the head in the sphere mm-hmm. uh, magic eight ball <laughs> what should I do <laughs> outlook yeah outlook grim. grim yeah whatever <laughs> you know you think they could at least let him record a different intro for each film that was somehow specific to why the same one and, uh, I mean I, uh, okay granted pretty much every story here does deal with a murder yeah yeah it's true yeah to to one degree yeah. or another right. But still, th- mm-hmm. I will say this one has less of a murder in it than anything else. Yeah, there's, it's it's there's right. there, there's an accidental killing. Yeah, yeah. But uh, and yeah. then a suicide. That's a very good point. Yeah, that's, that's very there's there's attempted murders, there's suicide, there's accidental yeah. killing, there's you know there's implied you know 
There's all kinds supernatural of supernatural murder. Maybe. There's all kinds you know, of implied. Yeah, there's things. all kinds of things. You know, let, yeah, let, yeah. Let's not, lots of implied. Yeah. Well, let's let's start with one place that I don't think anybody's going to expect me to actually start with, which is the let's talk about the implied cradle robbing. Okay. <laughs> well, there's that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is not something that gets a lot of a discussion when yeah. we talk about this movie. Yeah. But the way this film plays out mm-hmm. is is one of those things that the more I see in older movies, the the more I take note of it because times have changed. Thank God. Yes. Oh, yeah. Men in their forties no longer yeah. mac on teenagers mm-hmm. in the sense that we're getting. <laughs> although she's supposed to be, I guess, in her twenties, mm-hmm. is that the Paula, the the, mm-hmm. the woman that he that our our beloved Lon Chaney Jr. ends yeah. up marrying in this movie, he last saw when she was. A little child, a little girl. Yeah. And that's one of these reoccurring things in these older movies where yeah. it's like, well, I haven't seen you since you, you were, were a little girl. girl. And it's my, like, you've grown, yeah. And my, you look wonderful now. Should we have sex? Yeah. No. <laughs> no, you should not even be thinking down that road. That is incorrect, sir. That mm. is wrong. I don't care that she's an adult now and looking adoringly <laughs> at you. That is an incorrect thought. You need to sit in the corner and not have any alcohol for a while. That is your punishment. Cannot do this, but that's—it's not a big thing in this movie. But yeah. it's enough of a thing that I just—it's—it's it's well, weird. Well, he certainly treats her like a child through the whole film, and that is my point. He even has an exact quote in the film, which I had to write down because he calls you "poor, frightened, strange little child." I know who I'm also having sex with. <laughs> yeah, I know who I'm also apparently going to eventually have children with because, yeah. Yeah. although, and let's point out something else here, they do sleep in separate rooms. Yeah, yes, that's true. Yes, they do. Which I guess is a '40s thing. Mm. Uh, that's what I. Saw it as is a code thing, but yeah. uh, but uh, you know, but yeah, who knows? Who well, knows? it is. Yeah, you can read a lot into that. You can read a whole lot into that. <laughs> Let's point out that this one has a pretty impressive source material. Yes, this one comes from a story not, in my opinion, the best Fritz Leiber story. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Fritz Leiber's high fantasy, although he wrote in almost every genre you can think of. Mm. Uh, this was taken from his story Conjure Wife. Mm. It's a good enough story. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, every film adaptation I've seen of it uh, has wisely jettisoned the the body transference thing that creeps into the end of the story. Uh, there's some things that just aren't, aren't going to work that well. Mm-hmm. Uh, strange enough, there is a there there is one adaptation from 1980. It's a TV movie that plays it more for comedy than anything else. That does retain that aspect of oh, okay. it. Okay, I have never seen that. It stars Richard Benjamin. No, I can't even remember I who else is in it. I've never seen it. It's one that I'd be yeah. curious to see, but it's mm-hmm. not uh, it's not it's not very well regarded by those who mm-hmm. those who are fans of any of the other adaptations. Let's uh, let's point out that uh, this is the first adaptation of Conjure Wife into mm-hmm. a film. Mm-hmm. But it is not the best, as no, much as I may like this film. Yeah. In 1962, the, Brit- the Brits did a film that's either called Night of the Eagle mm-hmm. or Burn Witch Burn. You can see it under either title. And it is a fantastic awesome. movie. Yeah. Yeah. I have loved that movie for a yeah. lot of years. Yeah, and it uh, it never ceases to amaze me. I think it is... Uh, if, if whatever rating we end up giving this, trust me, the my opinion of Burn Witch Burn is at least... Two notches higher. <laughs> yeah, same here. Uh, very, very strong film, and I highly recommend you seek out Burn Witch Burn or Night of the Eagle, whatever title you see it under, from 1962. But there is a the, the common fallacy that you need to denigrate one adaptation to elevate another, and I don't think that's neat, something that yeah. you need to do here because I kind of like both of them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, 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 I think that there's good things in this film. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, we should point out that uh, Fritz Lieber, uh, the writer, was a junior. His father was an actor. Um, he was actually a Shakespearean actor, and while his movie career was nowhere near as significant as his theater work, the, the elder Lieber does turn up in a number of uh, film roles. We saw him as Franz Litz in the 1943 uh, Phantom of the Opera, and he was even in uh, the 1939 Hunchback of Notre Dame mm-hmm. as an old nobleman who thinks the earth is flat. <laughs> he, he'd, <laughs> yeah. have, he'd have some wealthy friends these days. Yeah, boy, would he! But his son, uh, who also did a you know did a, a little acting here and there, mm-hmm. but primarily made his living as a really good writer. And I want to go. I want to go out of my way to point people toward some of his uh, some of his work. If you have any interest in high fantasy, the Fafford Gray Mouser stories yeah, are, are top-notch. Really good stuff, yeah. Fantastic short stories and novellas. Mm-hmm. Uh, grab any collection. You don't need to worry about what order you're reading them in. They're just highly entertaining and yeah. sometimes incredibly funny. Yeah. Great yeah. stuff. So, uh, good source material. Not mm-hmm. great source material because, like I say, that... that Weirdness with the body swapping at the end of the story mm-hmm. does kind of. Uh, I always, I always forget that's there. <laughs> and I'm always glad that they don't try to wedge that into this film or to burn witch burn either. But anyway, this is um, Universal trying to find good, solid stories that they can wedge into the inner sanctum mold, mm-hmm. and this one works for yeah. that po- for yeah. that purpose. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm always a little surprised by just how much story gets crammed into this one hour and three minutes. There, really yeah. there are so many characters in this movie, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it is one of the first mm-hmm. times in one of these films that I think to myself that part of the reason why there's a lot of characters in this movie is that we got off a few of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we've got to burn through some of this cast <laughs> to kind of amp everything up and get everybody tense. And that does work in this movie, to my mind anyway. This is uh, a pretty effective movie. You, you didn't come to this until the DVDs came out, or did you? Uh, no, or, or is this, this one no, that you yeah, saw? This is one that they showed uh, okay. back when I was watching on TV. I did see it back in the early eighties on TV, but again, did not watch it just as I didn't want to really rewatch any of the Inner Sanctum films until I got the DVD set and really kind of poured through them again, uh, and I'd go understanding what they were. You know, going to appreciate right. them. By that time, then I was familiar with the source material, uh, more familiar with the, the actors kind of knowing what to expect, what not to expect the film and just kind of letting it, just taking it in and and, uh, and so I was able to appreciate a lot of the good things about the film. Cool, cool. Well, um, we'll get to uh, compare and contrast later on. We do once again have Lon Chaney playing a mental giant, a sophisticate, a, a total, writer. A total prick. <laughs> well, we'll get to the fact yes. that I <laughs> yeah. end up making, uh, yeah. I think I, I called him an asshole twice oh, in my oh, notes. Oh, my goodness, yeah. He's a jerk. Yes, Holy yes. crap. Well, let's uh, let's use a synopsis to kind of wind our way into this. I would like to point out that this movie immediately gets on my good side right at the beginning because the credits end and we are in a scene that I can only refer to as It Was a Dark and Stormy Night. I know, yeah, great, yeah, blustery, blustery High night. winds. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, they keep waiting for Pooh Bear to be blown by. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And we, we, we do almost immediately also, not uh, in the first few minutes in, we do end up getting the whisper-talking voiceover yes, again. we get the whisper-talking. And uh, at this point, uh, if if you were watching these movies in chronological order, one might uh, start crawling into a corner and thinking, oh, God, I'm going to have to deal with this every, one, every time out, right? It's like, <laughs> you know, just kind of hold on. Yeah. see how this goes. Oh, oh, by the way, I will say, I think in our earlier segment on Calling Dr. Death, I made it sound like uh, Calling Dr. Death was the one where he has the immortal lines of, you know, uh, 
two steps forward, one step back. Oh, no, no, that's, one step, that's actually in this film. Oh, that's in this that's film. That's in this yeah. film. And Weird Woman. So. No problem. So let's uh, let's start with a synopsis and mm-hmm. see where this leads us. Sociology professor Norman Reed, played by Lon Chaney Jr., mm-hmm. returns to Monroe College after a sabbatical during which he wrote an acclaimed book on superstition, and and he also married Paula, daughter of a scholar on the South Sea Island where Reed did his research. Let's pause because mm-hmm. yes. we need to talk about a couple things here. One, right. once again. Could be anywhere, Monroe Could be anywhere. College. Yes, Monroe yes. College, Polynesian, African. Uh, oh, well, oh, you're not in too that far. Yes, oh yes, no, no, right. that's yes, that's yes, the next yes, thing. That's the next thing. Could yes, be yes. anywhere. Yes, they say in the synopsis, South Sea Island, but man, are they vaguing it yes, up? They, they really are. <laughs> they really don't want to nail down what mm. part. I mean, we, we it's kind of got to be a Pacific Island, yeah. but then they screw up by shoving all of this Haitian voodoo stuff into the story <laughs> as well. It's like, well, wait a minute. Are you in the Pacific or are you in the Atlantic? You gotta, you gotta right. crack this open and let us know here. But, but no. what's most important is in the '40s, all it is is really an excuse to have a dance number because that's any time, <laughs> no matter what the tribe is, they've got yep. gets a chance to give us a little musical number. You know, we need uh, a little Polynesian flavor. You really always expect in the corner, no matter where it is, that's going to pan over and there's going to be the orchestra and the guy leading the, uh, the little bad jet, little band. <laughs> it didn't, little it dance, didn't get yeah. quite that bad. No. Yeah, yeah, you're not far off. No. <laughs> you are correct, sir. <laughs> Well, his new wife, Paula, uh, was was raised on the, this particular island that he was visiting to do research and write his book, was raised by uh, Laurent, Laruna, I can't even remember how to pronounce the priestess mm-hmm. name, but she was a priestess of a, of a cult devoted to the goddess Kahuna Ana Ana and shares many of her foster mother's beliefs. So, Paula, mm-hmm. we, have to, we have to be very careful. They're trying to not take the bullet of race mixing. Uh, yes, no, no, you're yes, Because in the, in the mid 40s, yeah. we can't be marrying a dark skinned person. No. That's a no no. Right. That's, uh, in fact, in a number of states, against the law. So yeah. she has to be the daughter, Paula has mm-hmm. to be the daughter of another white person mm-hmm. who's mm-hmm. on the island, mm-hmm. but who's been steeped in all of this foreign culture (laughs) so she has all of these beliefs and Uh they just seeped into Uh her brain she's been there for years and years since she was a child She's even swaying erotically to the music. We will yes. definitely, we'll definitely have to burn that out of her quickly. <laughs> yes, we got to get her back to. We got to get her back to, to American yes. soil and have her reconnect with the, the bland whiteness of 1940s America. <laughs> well, Norm, uh, Norman and Paula are welcomed to the university community, but not everyone is enthusiastic about them. Particularly, Ilona, the college librarian who had an affair with Norman and, and is determined to rekindle the flame. Now, Ilona is played by uh, yeah. one of our favorites, a yes. reoccurring actress here, yeah. Evelyn Anchors, or yes. Evelyn Anchors. Mm. I'm still unsure Me how too. we should pronounce that. <laughs> Not totally positive myself. But. She here is playing one of the uh, rarest of rare things for her, a bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. Or bad girl. She's the villainous. This She's, is definitely who Gail Sondergaard would have played if she had been oh, cast in this, this film. <laughs> yeah, most assuredly. This would have yeah. been the role Gail, Gail Sondergaard had been, would, yeah. would, would be slotted into without the slightest doubt. Because as we said, this is not a murder mystery whodunit. So the film very early on lets you in on what uh, Ilona, uh, Evelyn Ecker's character, yeah. what she's up to and what she's trying to do. Right. This is such an out-of-place kind of thing for Evelyn Ankers that it is good to know that um, she was uncomfortable playing the, the this villain role. She was not she was not called upon to do this very often. As a matter of fact, almost never. 
And uh, she was a little uncomfortable doing this because, quite honestly, the the actress that she that is playing Paula, who is who she's menacing throughout this entire picture, was a close friend. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, during the production of this, they shared they shared a, a dressing room. So mm-hmm. it was it was she found it really difficult to get into the mode of being a threatening, mean spirited woman. Mm-hmm. You know, in this in this story. And uh, that is a bit of a shame because it did apparently take some toll on them uh, because she felt she was miscast. Mm. Uh, if we think if we think Lon Chaney's miscast, and he is, <laughs> uh, she felt that way. She quote uh, she says quote uh, I don't feel a bit mean and I don't want to hurt Anne Gwynn because she's my best girlfriend. <laughs> so uh, original Laborg original Laborg the the director ended up saying to her, well this time forget all that. Think of something mean that she must have said or done to you and try it again. He would then say action, and I would sort of squint or narrow my eyes, even attempt to flare my nostrils in desperation, trying to work myself up to appearing evil, and then turn my head and look Anne in the eye threateningly. Bang! We would both come, become hysterical with laughter, and so would the whole company watching us. This happened time and time again until we were both absolutely exhausted. It was not only ridiculous, but also costly in time as well as money, not to mention poor Ridge Laborg's patience. We felt so sorry for him, even when he tried to get angry with us, which only made it worse. How we ever finished that picture, I'll never know. Universal got the message and never cast me as a villainess again. But I will say that I think she does a pretty darn good job as the bad guy here. And it is nice to see her not being, you know, the the often swept under the rug good good guy that, that really almost could be written out of the damn storyline. Because we've had a couple of those films already in our series, you know, that we've gone over where we just said, like, man, Evelyn Anchorage was just wasted in this film, you know. She she has nothing, yeah, so many of them where she just, she's got nothing to do. Why is she she in this? Why did you Mm. cast her? Did she just need a job at that point in time? Yeah. And she's under contract, so, well, she'll look good in this dress. Let's Mm. go ahead and trot her out there. Yeah. Give her her just almost nothing in the way of dialogue to chew on. Yeah. But at least in this... Boy, she's got some really juicy stuff oh, yeah. to play. Yeah. And is even if she feels she was miscast, I, I like watching her. Yes, yeah. and when she's being manipulative, she's good. I mean, she's yeah. restrained. She doesn't overplay it. You know, it doesn't leer at it or you know whatever. You know, when she's when she's working on people's you know minds to to manipulate events. Well, uh, Professor Millard Sawtell is Norman's rival for the chairmanship of the sociology department. And while he is painfully mild-mannered, his ambitious wife, Evelyn, is determined that he will win that job. Uh, of course, we have seen the actor playing Millard Sawtell before as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in more than a few things, I think uh, Black Friday is where uh, we would probably go back to, mm-hmm. where he is essentially in the role that probably should have been played by... Either Bella Lugosi or Boris Karloff, yeah. one yeah. or the other. Ralph Morgan, he's very good in this, and um, yeah, he and playing a, playing a meek and mild fellow. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, we saw how good a performance yeah. he gave in in the not particularly great Black Friday, yeah, where he had to seesaw back and forth between a mild mannered guy and mm-hmm. a, a nasty brutish <coughs> gangster type. Yeah, and he's very good in that, and he's good here as well, playing this weak weak willed man and uh, <laughs> eventually kills himself. Mm-hmm. Well, Ilona begins plotting against Norman and Paula with the hope of driving Paula away. Norman Norman discovers that Paula has been visiting the local cemetery at night and conducting rituals to advance Norman's career and keep him from harm. Appalled, he insists on burning all her charms. Now, um, we're skipping past a lot of things here because, man, there are a lot of characters in this movie. There are, yeah. We we have the... uh, 
young, uh, uh, the young college uh, co-ed who uh, is basically just in love with uh, with our with our because how can you not be right? how can you not be in love with Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah, he's got that he's, he's, he's in full on Nashy mode in this movie because oh, no. he's got not one not two but three women that are like just that are just drooling over him. exactly he's, yeah. he's got a wife he's got an ex girlfriend uh-huh. who by the way he treats like dirt oh god no kidding yeah talk about brushing aside holy yeah. crap yeah. He did, one one can slightly sympathize with Alona, the the evil and anchor's character, yeah, because I mean, my God, yeah. is he a is he a cad or yeah. what? Yeah, oh, I know he's just a total absolute jerk, and 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 really a total jerk to the little co-ed that's you know that's that's, that's well, when he finds out, I mean, you can understand why out. he brushes off, but yeah, <laughs> he does well, he it in such off. a he does it in such a brusque oh, yeah, kind of just, cruel matter. Matter, like, oh, yeah, his manner is so oh wow, he really. <laughs> He needed to think that through, and of course, because he isn't thinking it through, and he's mm. on his, in his own selfish mm. little mm. freaking world. Yeah, we end up with her crazy boyfriend getting killed, but we'll get there. Yeah. So he uh, so he ends up burning all of her uh, her voodoo charms mm. and stuff like that, which she's upset about because she she tries to convince him. Look, there's all this stuff working against you here. There are all mm-hmm. these people plotting against you, and mm-hmm. the only thing keeping this stuff at bay is this superstitious stuff that I'm doing that you don't have any belief in. Mm-hmm. We should point out that his whole shtick, mm-hmm. his, the, the book he's just written mm-hmm. that's, that's uh, turned, turned, you know, turned him into a, a fairly famous author in the, in the sociology field is all about the, the difference between sociology, I mean, I'm sorry, superstition and rational belief. Yeah, yeah. And he plants his feet firmly on the side of rational belief and to have his wife... Being uh, someone trucking in this ridiculous superstitious mm-hmm. garbage, as he sees it, is is something he has to do away with, and that is where I end up agreeing with this character. Yes. And it's the only place right. I end up. I was agreeing going to say this, this is the one point where you can kind of get understand his point of view. Right. You know, he's built his whole career on this, and hey, he's got a wife who's you know who's, going who's, around very openly it. flaunting the yeah. fact that she's you know that she's into superstition and and, and carrying totems around all this and so Wear, wearing that wearing that necklace around yeah. that he's perfectly fine with as long as he, he thinks it's just an affectation or right. a kind of just interesting decorative thing that reminds her of the, of the place she grew up but as soon as it becomes some kind of integral part of her superstitious belief system that's quote unquote protecting him he tosses it into the fire yeah. like some kind yeah. of asshole. Yeah, yeah. And that's where he calls, tells her what she's a little child. And he, he's I so know. condescending at when he's not just being a templated jerk. He's being just so super condescending. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so we've got the ex-girlfriend, Ilona, who is major jealous and is out for blood. Yeah, and let's just say for the first when she when he comes home and it kind of embarrassed, humiliates her in front of the whole crowd who knows, you know, how much she's hung up on him when he comes back and brings back his new yep. wife. His whole with, with treat- no warning, with yeah, no, warning, with no at all. warning, and then his whole treatment of her is just so cold, crappy, and cold. Yeah, and just like you know, hey, if he went out and fell in love, and, and you know, and from his point of view, he was never that into her other than just their fleeing. Okay, yeah, fair enough, fair but you enough. can still be a human being about it. And the, the, because of the, the movie in this respect, really doesn't do Cheney any favors because you know, like I said Cheney's already struggling against. Being miscast in the film, you yeah. know, but then when you give him kind of, uh, uh, you know, a script that kind of just allows him to be Cheney, the the the, the bull in the social china shop, you know, basically, you know, yeah. uh, the guy that kicks over the the natives, you know, <laughs> effigy there just because he wants to hug the oh, little girl. God, because, you know. Okay, yeah, let's start off. The, 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 <laughs> that's, the a little con- that, that's a little contrived, I think. Well, and not only well, not only that, I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's like this is supposed to be some kind of erudite 
sophisticated, intelligent, knowledgeable yeah. man yeah. about this stuff, and he cannot contain his his bullshit mm. his bullshit nature. He is such an overprivileged asshole mm. that he he thinks so little of the natives on that island that their, their beliefs don't mean anything to him, and he doesn't even retain enough info about what's going on around him to simply respect them as a guest yeah, like he yeah, should. Yeah, right. And ends up, you know, on the wrong end of these natives, and it's like, dude, <laughs> you are a piece of garbage. What yeah, is wrong yeah. with you? Yeah. So almost immediately, I mean, mm. maybe not so in the 1940s. We have to right. account for sure. the fact that that might not have been seen as an immediate mm-hmm. black mark on his character. But holy crap, every time I've viewed it, I've just thought, yeah. my God, dude, have some respect for these people. Yeah. You're in their place. Right. Chill. Do what they say. Yeah. It's not going to It's not. It's not going to harm you <laughs> to just do what they say. That's all you got to do. <laughs> and he can't manage it. He's, a, he's such a prick. Oh, God. Oh, I, I, think, I think I wrote down overprivileged asshole, and they're like, underline it. Yeah. That's exactly what this guy is. So... Uh, you're right in that the character itself, the way the character's written, doesn't help Lon Chaney yeah. as far as his performance is concerned. Yeah. So he's he's already like <laughs> two steps back. Yeah, right. Hey, one step forward. Yeah, Sorry, I've been, been, been waiting to spring uh, that one. Well Sorry, well I've been waiting played. to spring that one. So I didn't want to say anything earlier. Uh, so he's already essentially two steps back mm. when we look at this as a whole. Yeah. And so <laughs> when we get to the point where you're going, okay, so he's got the, the, the mild-mannered colleague... With the ambitious wife, who's essentially, uh, until we until later in the in the story when she realizes what's going on, she's essentially like as cruel and mean spirited as Lady Macbeth for God's sake. Yeah, and we have to mention Elizabeth Russell. Yeah, it's great to see her anytime you see her. Like I mean, that's I had forgotten. You know, I start watching the film and you see her almost immediately because she's the one who looks out the window and sees Anne Gwen running through all the wind. You know, and you're like, yes, it's Elizabeth Russell. We're in '40s thriller heaven here. You know. So great in oh, this. No, just, yeah. and, and she's got that man. That her, amazing her fa- face. Her, yeah. yeah, that face was built to play mean spirited, cruel, and vicious yeah. people. Oh, yeah. she's so good at it too. Mm. I love. Uh, yeah, she's she's amazing. So um, we 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 have the uh, the eventual co-ed co-ed collateral. Yeah, that's the way I yeah, think of right, it. Right, right. With the 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 jealous boyfriend, I've mm. seen some people single out the boyfriend as possibly being a freaking psycho <laughs> <laughs> because. I mean, you know, there's jealous, and then there's I'm going to fight this professor guy, mm-hmm. and then when it went twice my size, who's twice my size, and when he tosses me out the tosses me uh, out of his office, uh, I'm going to go get a gun and fired at him twice, point blank, and miss and know? miss. <laughs> it's like you're a psycho with shitty aim. It's like, well, 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 I mean, there there might there are definitely worse kinds of psycho, but yeah. man, that you pick pathetic in the stick on this one. Yeah. Holy crap, what's wrong with you? Anyway, so. <laughs> Oh man, I've 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 forgotten how 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 jam packed this thing is with stuff. Oh gosh, yes it is. Well, uh, Paula is completely upset because she she realizes that once these charms are burned, that she can't she can't protect him anymore. And immediately, just as soon as all that stuff is in the fire, yeah, yeah they hear a gunshot, and it turns out that uh, our 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 poor mild mannered. Mm. Um, uh, colleague, colleague, the the other college professor, Miller, uh, Millard, has killed himself mm-hmm. because Ilona has come to him and said and explained to him that, uh, hey, Reed, mm-hmm. our main character here, he uh, he's aware the fact that you kind of uh, well plagiarized the mm-hmm. book that you published yeah. recently. Yeah. 
from this thesis that was written by a really talented uh, student here. He's called for it. He obviously knows about it and wants to wants to uh, wants to read it, and he, he's he's probably going to use it to call you out mm. and uh, to disgrace you. Which is, of course, total BS. Mm. This is Alona making this crap up because she knew it somehow. We never yeah. know how yeah, she really. knew she this. Yeah, really. She somehow uncovered this. Yeah. yeah, she uncovered this one way or another. And um, this is what causes um, the, the poor college professor to go off and commit suicide because he can't face mm. the fact that uh, he's always going to you know, be pushed around by his overbearing wife and the shame that will come if, this, if it comes out that he plagiarized this thesis would be too much for him to bear. So he kills himself. So that is like that's, that that gunshot is like the the starter gun for yeah. everything tumbling downhill yeah, from there on yeah. for the rest mm-hmm. of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we get Margaret, the uh, the the student co-ed who is uh, infatuated with Norman, with the uh, as I say possibly mentally unstable uh, boyfriend. Uh, Ilona encourages Margaret's relationship with Norman and then plants seeds of doubt in uh, her boyfriend's mind. Uh, she uh, also discovers that Dr. Sawtell has plagiarized that here, here's that part mm-hmm. uh, Sawtell shoots himself shoots himself Miller Sawtell shoots himself uh, Evelyn influenced by Ilona accuses the reads of murder so the the, the dead professor's wife calls him a murderer mm-hmm. which is a major stretch yeah <laughs> and definitely point definitely points to the fact that this woman knows that she's somewhat culpable in pushing mm-hmm. this man in directions that he did not wish to go in. So mm-hmm. there's a little bit of that there. Mm-hmm. Nothing no, nothing will make you lash out at someone more than guilt, right. let me tell you. Yeah. So when Margaret reveals her love for Norman, uh, he brusquely dismisses her, and she accuses him of acting inappropriately with her. This draws the attentions of college officials and leads to an angry confrontation between Norman and Jennings. The, the chairmanship of the department is given to an outsider, someone who isn't even at the college, and Norman begins to wonder if his run of bad luck is somehow related to Paula withdrawing her magical protections. In other words, he's, he's starting to doubt that the whole mm. under the whole underbedding of his, mm. his way of thinking about life and everything mm. around it. And by the way, I think one of the best written scenes and actually one of the characters I really like is that, you know, the woman who's the dean of women. She's fantastic. She's got a great, because she has a great gallows humor and just kind of a sarcastic co- commentary on everything, you know, and they remark a lot of times about she seems a little, you know, she's very blunt in, in what she says. Yeah. But that scene, that's one of the scenes that I think is the best for him and the writing is some of the best is the scene where she comes to him to tell him, that he's been accused of, you know, of of of, of uh, inappropriate behavior right. by by the co-ed girl. You know, that's uh, uh that's a very well written scene, and it's also very relevant for today, just because obviously now that's very much in the forefront of everyone's mind. Now is this kind of thing going on in oh, yeah. schools? You know, but at that time you didn't see that referred to as much in films. You know, oh yeah, just to it, kind of it made me that. think of uh, David Mamet's play uh, Oleana, mm-hmm. where uh, that is very, you know that's very much front and center. That's the whole point of the entire play is you know the whole he should he said she said aspect mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, of what did actually occur between two people, mm-hmm. especially when uh, one of them is a college professor of some renown and the other is a student. Yeah, it's like who do you believe? It's like, who do you who do you put more stress on? When thinking about the per, you know the the perceived nature of what went down, and this is that in 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 a tiny tiny mm-hmm. little couple of minute sequence. That's one of the few points in the film where he kind of seems like a genuine person. You know, he shows a, you know a little bit of rationality, not yeah. just not just done, not just totally reacting badly to everything that everybody says. He didn't act like a total jerk in that scene. So. Well, and it, and it seems to me that this mainly because. And this is the way it seems to be written. The character. This is the one. This is one of the few characters 
that he interacts with that he actually respects. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Because yeah, this yeah. woman is a no BS kind of person mm-hmm. who knows her mm-hmm. job and knows mm-hmm. everybody around her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has that great line when she, at one point, she says to Ilona in front of everybody, you know, sometimes I look at you and I get the sense of looking at Jack the Ripper. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> And she, I mean, she, she's a, she's a no BS, you know, kind of person, and then yeah. I think that that is that they play well off of each other mm-hmm. because I think he respects her, and yeah. almost you almost have to respect that character because yeah. she didn't take any guff, right? Yeah. Well, things start to get worse when Jennings threatens Norman with a gun. This is the, uh, this is the uh, the uh, boyfriend <laughs> boyfriend of the, the poor the poor coed. Threatens Norman with a gun in the gym and is accidentally shot during their struggle. Yeah, Later, we find out that the only thing he can hit with a gun is himself, apparently. Yeah, apparently. And I know so. how much you love that. I was thought about you. I saw that. I know how much you love the, <laughs> the wrestling with a gun or knife that oh, it turns on, you know, that, uh, that, that movie like, uh, convention there. <laughs> oh, it's... If, if it was done in one film, it was done in 7,000. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always wondered, does that ever did, has that ever happened in real life? I mean, I it's, it's one thing if somebody's actually trying to shoot the other person and they, you know, but but if somebody's not actively, if you're just trying to get a gun away from somebody, has anyone ever actually accidentally shot the person that they were trying to I wrestle the gun away from? Who the heck knows? <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, uh, the, 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 poor, the poor kid later dies, mm-hmm. and Norman faces the possibility of a manslaughter charge, so it's all going to hell. Mm-hmm. Adding to Paula's increasing hysteria are phone calls that are coming to the house, with someone on the other end playing uh, a, uh, a record of the death chant from the mm-hmm. island that she grew up on. Norman discovers that Ilona, he does eventually discover that it is Ilona that's behind it all, and Evelyn is helping her, so... This is uh, where things finally turn and we can start to move in the other direction. Norman convinces Evelyn that Ilona is responsible for her husband's death and they come up with a plot of their own. Evelyn tells Ilona that she she dreamed of a quote-unquote woman who lied. She She saw a vision of her dead husband and how she ended up strangled after 13 days. This woman who lied is going to end up dead, strangled in 13 days from the night she had this dream. When she came downstairs, she discovered a doll with a cord around its neck and nails in its head. Ilona becomes convinced that she will indeed die after the time is up, mainly because she spends those next few days having these really convenient run-ins with things that seem like a strange countdown to that day. (laughs) Some of which, you know, I will believe could be happenstance, but Mm -hmm. I just, I have to hope that surely the idea was to try to impart that some of these were being put in her path so that it doesn't all seem like some psycho coincidence. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, so that by the night that she's supposed to die at one minute after midnight, mm-hmm. she goes she goes to Evelyn's house and uh, tries to get her to uh, give her the, the voodoo doll so she can destroy it so that she won't be killed mm-hmm. because she's now so worked up into a frenzy that she's convinced that this stuff actually is real. Ends up confessing all of her sins to Evelyn to try to get her to give the voodoo, give her the voodoo doll and, of course, everybody was there waiting, thinking that she might break and that they would listen to her give her mm-hmm. confession. Mm-hmm. Uh, she goes a little crazy, runs out of the room, and into <laughs> attempts to flee out a second-story window, walking across the, the trellis outside the window, mm-hmm. falls through, is entangled in the vines, and is strangled to death, making that weird, phony prophecy a reality. Yeah. Yeah. Right at one minute after midnight. So... Mm-hmm. I really do enjoy this film. I do too. And it wasn't until I was doing my research 
that I discovered that there were a subset of uh, film fans and universal horror fans and thriller fans who hate it or mm. don't like it at all and mm. think it's garbage. Mm. And I was taken aback yeah. because yeah. I have always liked this film um, with the caveat that, no, it was done better in 62 with mm. Burn Witch Burn, don't mm. get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But holy crap, I like this film. And to, to, to know that there are people out there who can't get into the spirit, spirit of it and enjoy it, mm-hmm. even with the, you know, granted, this casting. I, I, I don't understand it. This one kind of rocks the house. And for a lot of years, I thought of this as my favorite of all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, since then, I've, you know, it's not that it's, uh, that it's fallen in my estimation, but over the years, I've come to enjoy some of the others more with repeat viewings. And so it doesn't stand up as tall mm-hmm. as yeah. it used to in my, in my viewing. But I do really like it a lot and think it's one of the strongest of the series as I'm thinking back on them mm-hmm. now anyway. Mm-hmm. Where does this one fall for you? Yeah, I I did enjoy it. I do of the two here, you know, the that I, I like it a little more than Calling Doctor Death. I mean, I kind of gave my I kind of gave it a seven and a real solid. Like I wasn't waffling between seven and six. I mean, I felt really like you know seven okay. is about where I ranked it, and I felt like it was the more the more overall satisfying of the two uh, uh, for a few reasons. One, it it as we said earlier, it pulls from a stronger source material. Yeah, <clears throat> one of the brilliant things, most brilliant things about the original story was the setting setting it in academia um, and that's explored even better in Burn Witch Burn you know but the whole yeah. brilliance of taking something like the manipulations and the power plays of witchcraft and putting in something as mundane as just a bunch of academics trying to one up each other trying to get advancement in like getting their little academic books published or getting right. to get to get to be like a, a, a chair in, in of some department or something you know something that the rest of the outside world cares nothing about, but it's just so crucial in their lives, you know, to the point that they would actually threaten each other's lives and use and use, you know, try and use spiritual means to <laughs> affect or to affect their spouse's right. chances. Is a brilliant idea, you know, and it's, it's it makes a great setting for this kind of thing for this story. But let's point out that this adaptation that is true of the uh, the story of Conjure mm-hmm. Life, where mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the things that are happening. Uh, are because some of the people, some of the women in the mm-hmm. on the on the campus actually are practicing witchcraft, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. her and the protections that the wife has set up for her mm-hmm. husband really are working mm-hmm. to protect him. And that is mm-hmm. something that gets played with a, a good bit in Burn Witch Burn. Mm-hmm. But that's completely extracted from this adaptation, where all of yeah, the supernatural this time it's stuff, an outside woman who brings yeah. in the witchcraft, and then yeah, then the others just pretend to just to counteract. You're right. I mean, they yeah. t- they took that a lot of that, you know. But uh, I was thinking, well, but in the case of like Elizabeth Russell and her husband I mean just again those how strong their just ambitions within that oh I know I little know. Sec- isolated world is yeah and it, and it shows that this this story and the and the the structure of it and, and this basic plot does you can have it with the supernatural element or you can have it without it and it still works as well because yeah. the the nasty side of human nature comes to the fore no matter what in those in these circumstances and it's very easy to believe in either direction that those are the driving forces behind all of this this horrible crap that goes down that ends up with two people dead yeah and even if we well three people dead i guess right, I mean, yeah, we got to yeah, take right, into yeah, account right, yeah. yeah but even if you're looking in even for people who do enter into these films hoping like i said like i did in my original viewing when i was younger you know of wanting it to end up being something supernatural it leaves you with those kind of interpretations that hey if you yeah. want to you can ask how much what happened especially the ending there you know how much is maybe influenced by some actual outside forces, you know, you can t- totally take it or leave it if you want to, that's but true. that's a very clever thing in the writing. Um, I also, uh, 
I think outside of, of Lon Chaney, and again, he wasn't helped a whole lot by the script, but outside of Lon Chaney, I, I think there's some very, very good performances. I think the three main females are, are leads are all very good, and, yes. and Gwen, Evelyn Anchors, and Elizabeth Russell. And it's uh, when I was reading, uh, just looking up some reviews myself and just about the film, and I came across one that, and I wish I, I unfortunately, I'm going to have to, to reference it without, I didn't write down where I saw it, but I thought it was a very interesting point. It said that this film basically features three very strong performances from three actresses who should have had more, who had more to offer than what they were able to, to, to give to, you know, in their yeah. acting careers, which is Evelyn Anchors, Elizabeth Russell, and Anne Gwynn all should have done more, you know, than what, than what they did, because they were all very capable. And, the, and you're right. They are very good here. I think it's very obvious that uh, these three actresses knew that uh, these were not necessarily the, the kinds of uh, juicy parts that they, that they would end up with and you know, in different mm-hmm. dramas or things mm-hmm. that they would end up playing in and, and, and throughout their career. Uh, and even though uh, Evelyn Anchors felt that she was miscast, I think she does a fine job yeah. in this. She is, mm-hmm. yeah. she is, uh, she is well, she is, she, she acquits herself well as the nasty villainess of this piece. I, I would agree. She does. And, um, uh, and, and I think it's, it falls under that kind of category of films that we've seen quite a few of. And it made me, it was curious because I was, I, I was watching, I was thinking, you know, I can't think of any film from any time where the film is about a woman suspecting her husband is a sorcerer or a, a wizard or, oh. or using supernatural. Now, there's tons of films where a woman suspects her husband is a murderer, you know, or, right. or to no good in that way. But there's all kinds of films, TV shows, and all sorts of things, you know, that convention of, of the man suspecting that his, you know, significant, that the woman in his life is 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 in up to no good or is a witch or is a you know it's always the woman who it just is funny how that there was just that kind of mindset especially in older films too where it's just it was i think it was just easier for people to accept a story of a woman being into witchcraft you know oh, and, yeah, and being yeah, into, you know course. then there was the the man it's, you know, it's, but, it's the it's the well let's let's remember the whole witch thing i mean yeah sure it is it is the standard thing i mean it is it's misogyny it's yeah it's right. the distrustful males who mm-hmm. are trying to find some mm-hmm. some uh, some reason to not just distrust the woman they already distrust the woman they're mm-hmm. trying to find some you know religiously significant way to twist things so that they can mm-hmm. have a reason to not only control the woman but to kill her if she steps too far out of line from what they want her to be mm-hmm. and so those moments when uh, Ilona's, you know, essentially kind of just, you know, referring to Paula as a witch wife. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, wow, you really up in the game by mm-hmm. by whipping out the witch word here, aren't we? I yeah. Mean, you know, yeah. This is, this is, this is, uh, you know, as close as we can get to bitch as possible <laughs> in the forties. And so yeah. you're going to lean heavily into the possible supernatural, you know, the possible supernatural elements that you're implying are there. Okay, fine. But it is this uh, it is this part of the this this part of the story that uh, the movie doesn't one thing that I I wish the movie did a little bit more it doesn't even it almost takes like a half step in the direction of trying to make you think that maybe something supernatural is going on mm-hmm. for a couple of minutes it's like when all once the you know that stuff is thrown in the fire all the all the mm-hmm. protective stuff quote unquote is thrown mm-hmm. in the fire and then immediately the sh- that gunshot goes mm-hmm. off. Mm-hmm. It, it it would have been easy for the movie to move in the direction of no, there's some really supernatural shit mm-hmm. going on mm-hmm. here. This is mm-hmm. real. This is yeah. what's going on. Uh, of course, it it doesn't. No, right. and it doesn't really like faint in that direction very effectively mm-hmm. at all. And yeah. when it could have, yeah, and right. one thing is that if the movie was given another like ten minutes, they could have 
put enough space within the story to 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 make that aspect of it a you know something that started to creep into the audience's mind or it started to become a possibility for the audience mm -hmm. that well damn i think maybe there's something to this mm -hmm. But this movie ain't got time for it. We got yeah, right. we got sixty three we got sixty three <laughs> minutes. We gotta we gotta get to the real thing here. Well, uh, you mentioned uh, you you actually made, made, gave a good segue for me to go ahead and go into a quick little uh, you know my little alternate title segments there. Ooh, you know, possibly. Cool. Now, what do you got? I, I gotta be honest. I I don't think I can't. I don't think I knocked it out of the park this time. But I feel like I always feel like the title "Weird Woman" is just weird. <laughs> it's just a yeah. <laughs> well, when did it, here, here's the it's one. It's kind of pulpy, which I like. But go ahead. I, I agree. The one title that I thought of. Uh -huh. It's just a slight variation, which would be Weird Women. Oh, Weird Women. Okay, okay. I didn't think of that. That's good, because the, the one that I had that was a slight variation was Witch Woman. Instead okay, of Weird okay. Woman, it was Witch Woman. But what made me think of it was Witch Wife, and I thought, I thought Witch Wife would be fun, although I think which I think of between two, I think I liked Witch, witch, witch Woman. Witch Wife would have at least had yeah. that verbal callback yeah. within the body of the film. So Another one I came bad. up with just swapping these words around was Weird Wife, but I thought, okay, that's... <laughs> I don't know about that. That's more, like, that's more like a comedy, but you know, the best title, unfortunately, I think, for it, was already taken two years earlier, was I Married a Witch. It would have just been, but there was already a film two years later, I mean, earlier, excuse me, that yeah. was released called I Married a Witch, but I think which is that, a great, Which is a great film. I, yes, it is. But I thought that would have been a great, that would have been, that title's already taken. The other one I came up with was, uh, I think it was maybe 10 years ahead of its time, was uh, Witch on the Campus, because in the 50, because, you know, if it had been the film in the 50s, you know, that's kind of when the idea, you know, the, the, the films were starting to get more aimed for, teenagers and college age kids and the kind of the idea yeah. of you know even yeah. though you've got it is on a campus and you've got the students as characters in this film which on the campus sounds to me more like a 50s film title than it does a 40s film title <laughs> but anyway that's just some of the things I came up with I don't really like I said I didn't come up with something I just like oh that's it but campus witch yeah campus sounds like witch a, sounds, like a, sounds like a comedy <laughs> yeah it does yeah so yeah. so yeah but but I did I did think weird woman is just a strange title but I, weird women I like that that's not bad weird women's it's not a, it's a subtle change yeah but no. it's more descriptive it definitely is yeah and it, it, and it would be a really great title if they kept the idea of there being actual witchcraft going on mm -hmm. in the storyline because mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. you could actually play into the idea. I mean, it still works mm -hmm. with the film as it is, mm -hmm. but it, with that title, then you're kind of leading into the whole, you're leading into the whole, um, you know, three witches thing and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, uh, pro, you know, prophetic stuff. We're, we're once again in uh, Macbeth territory without leaning too hard into the Lady Macbeth aspect of mm -hmm. one particular character. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it could go in that direction. Mm -hmm. I wanted to quote this from the Universal Horrors book uh, and th because I, 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 I found myself chuckling at this, I, uh -huh. I will have to admit. Uh, seldom have so many neurotic characters been crammed into one picture. <laughs> it's amazing how easily these presumably educated bunch fall prey to Ilona's schemes. Only wise sardonic grace, played ni uh, nicely played by Elizabeth Risen, displays any semblance of rationality. With the quote, Ilona, there's something about your smile that makes me think of Jack the Ripper. <laughs> Surprisingly, Evelyn Anchors didn't relish the challenge of portraying a miscreant for a change, and that's when they go into talking about how she felt miscast. But I have to once again stress, she's good at this. She is, and, and, and I see their point that, you know, yeah, obviously you can step back and say, like, okay, these people should should have, should have realize you know, well how easily they're being worked on. But again, said yeah. it's, it's only got an hour to do this, and, you know, we can't have too, you know, it's not too, there's only so much time you can give to you know to, you yeah. know you're gonna just have to have this one scene with each character where she pretty much just sits there and saying like you know you know 
I'd be really pissed off if I was you in this situation and just let it roll and let it, let, let, let it work its way and natural things unfold there. So, uh, I thought it was funny that um, Elizabeth Russell, uh, she never had any qualms about playing dark characters. And they say that, uh, they, 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 from the, once again, from the Universal Horrors book, uh, the statuesque, statuesque Ash Blonde uh, christened, christened the Hori of Horror by, <laughs> by, by the Hollywood Reporter, got the showy part of Evelyn Sawtell through her agent, veteran uh, director E.A. DuPont. Earlier in her life, Russell enjoyed a lucrative career as a top New York fashion model for John Robert Powers and fostered no ambitions toward becoming an actress. She submitted to a screen test in 1936 and was signed up to a long-term contract with Paramount. After appearing in a trio of undistinguished programmers, Russell returned to modeling after the studio dropped her option. Russell's friend Zazu Pitts convinced her to give the picture business another whirl, and that she did, appearing in two of Zazu's comedies. This led to her first horror film appearance as Bela Lugosi's remarkably preserved 80-year-old wife in Monogram's Riotous The Corpse Vanishes in 1942. Mm, mm. Then came Cat People in 1942 as well, and a long, fruitful association with Val Luton. The producer's superb uh, Curse of the Cat People was the actress's finest hour. Jokingly calling herself, quote, a female Bela Lugosi in a constant zombie state, unquote, <laughs> Russell had no regrets concerning the brevity of her acting career. Quote, I made a lot of mistakes because I wasn't aware of the opportunities involved, mm. unquote. Mm. But she's one of my favorite things in the movie. No, she's so. great. She's great. So between these first two, mm-hmm. which, I mean, it sounds like you're, you're falling on the weird woman side. I am, uh, but... Not by a huge margin. I mean, I did like Doctor Death. It's like I said before. I think the story in Weird Weird in Weird Woman is more compelling, and I think you know the writing's a little better. You know, overall, yeah. I just think it's better constructed, more interesting story wise. Um, and but I think as Cheney vehicles, I feel like his performance and and his character are better in Calling Doctor Death. Okay, okay. Uh, this to me, uh, it has not. It is my favorite of these two. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has not fallen uh, very far into over the years. I do think it is fantastic. It is definitely one of my favorites of the series as we go along. Uh, and it'll be interesting to uh, to kind of use this opportunity to compare and contrast. Yeah, yeah. So I do like this film. I like both of these films. Mm-hmm. And uh, w- once again, I'm a little surprised at how much anger seems to mm-hmm. be directed at both of them from various quarters over the, yeah. you know, in the, in the, uh, the uh, I would call it fan press, although mm-hmm. they were talking about people who write full books instead of yeah. just articles and magazines. It's a little odd to me because mm-hmm. uh, these are fun movies. If you can't have fun with these movies, yeah. Jesus, man, yeah. hang it up and stop watching these films. Well, I definitely like to get feedback uh, from both sides if we can, but I know especially you know some people expressed excitement that we were getting to these films, you know, yeah. and, and so yeah. we we reached out and you know, we told them, you know, hey, since we are cramming two into one episode and may not talk about them at length as much as you would like, then please supplement our discussions with uh, send in your thoughts you know that Please we can do. read them you know we can share them with with other listeners uh, yeah I would I would love nothing more than doing an entire uh, email episode wrapped around nothing but talking about the inner sanctum films and different people's attitudes and, and opinions mm-hmm. on them that would be great mm-hmm. uh, before we wrap this up I would like to uh, to go through a little bit of critics corner yeah. here just yeah. to, to just to get a sense of what it was thought of. Uh, Harrison's reports, April 8th, 1944. The story is far-fetched and lacks excitement. Discriminating audiences will find it tiresome, and even the most ardent followers of this type of entertainment may find it but mildly interesting. Hmm. 
The New York Times, April 1st. April 1st, mm. 1944. Bosley Crowther. Oh, yeah, yeah. Couldn't let it go. I Had know, to we've got, got to. Got to get Bosley's input. It certainly is weird what some women and some film studios will do in a fit of desperation. <laughs> weird, isn't it? And boy, is it dull. <laughs> so Bosley... Who not never a met a thriller no, or a horror movie that he could not denigrate. So yeah, if they, if, Bos- if Bosley's head was in that globe, I'd have to be just smashing that thing every day, <laughs> yeah, at least giving it a good roll across the floor. There, <laughs> I did. I have actually seen pictures of what Bosley looked like, and he does look very Bosley. He does it's, very Bosley. It's, yeah. it's, the, it's the correct word for him. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's a bo- it's both a name and a descriptor, so it works effectively. Um, thoroughly enjoying going through these inner sanctum films yeah, this I, is fun man this, uh, yeah. uh, I will say that we did I did get one uh, at least one possibly two different people who uh, dropped me uh, a note on Facebook to say that if they had a vote mm-hmm. they would have us break these out and do them one at a time mm-hmm. and at this point I have to admit I kind of understand yeah yeah it is a little bit uh, we, we have bitten it off a little bit more than we probably we're comfortable chewing. I'm glad we did it this way because it gets us a ju- it gets us a jump on these. Yeah. But I will say that um, I am now sliding in the direction mm-hmm. of agreeing with the idea of doing these one at a time in the future. If enough um, people feel yeah. that that's the way we should so, approach it in the future, yeah, we will. Yeah, man. I mean, it's your show. I just I just show up to click the paid paycheck and then uh, <laughs> yes, my way. Yes. So so it's your your call. <laughs> you're you're saving up for that second Porsche. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This is just my springboard to bigger things. That's right. <laughs> you've already you've already bought the third house. You just exactly. I'll did the, make sure the checks don't bounce, Barnett, and everything will be fine. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so depending on how uh, how people react to the the covering of two at a shot here, we may continue this or we may break it up. I am a little more flexible on this than when we initially mm, yeah. mapped this out. Yeah, um, really enjoy this. I'm having a blast. Yeah. So when we return though mm-hmm. to the uh, to this string of uh, Universal 1940s horror films, uh, our next film will be another dip into. The Sherlock Holmes well. I, I thought it might be. I usually don't look ahead because I like you to surprise me at the end of the show. So, yes, but I thought it probably would be another Sherlock Holmes film since they hit every other month, you know. So, yeah, yeah. They start, they start to come pretty fast and furious at this point. Yeah, the next yeah. one is The Scarlet Claw. Sweet. Sweet. From uh, May 26th, 1944. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I haven't revisited The Scarlet Claw in a while. Uh, mm-hmm. Once we started doing these and I knew that we were going to come up on it, I've tried to, I, mm-hmm. I've had the urge to go back to some of these and I've, I've made myself not. Yeah. And so, really looking forward to revisiting The Scarlet Claw. So, that is what you and I will cover the next time we return to this Excellent. thread of episodes. Cool. Of course, the next time you and I talk, mm-hmm. we'll, uh, we'll be uh, sitting down with our buddy Jeff to discuss to discuss mm-hmm. another Lucio Fulci film. Yes, Fulci time again on the bloody pit. Yes, yes. We should we should probably warn people that it is not one that you're expecting. We're gonna no, do no. We're gonna do conquest, folks. <laughs> yes, I know. Yes, you heard right. <laughs> because I got to choose, and when I choose, it's the weird Italian ones, not the ones that you already know and love. That's the sound of people just sitting back in their chair after they just started to get excited. <laughs> they got excited. Ooh, I remember when they talked about the Beyond. That was fun. Yeah. Conquest. Yeah. What? Give Give Conquest another chance. You'll find it is exactly what you remembered. <laughs> <laughs> Well, even someone who, like myself, loves Conquest mm-hmm. is more than willing to say that the entire script could have been written on the back of a napkin. So. Yes, that is for sure. 
Uh, oh my! It's gonna be a fun discussion. It oh, it will be a, a lot, lot of fun. How can you not have fun? Yes, definitely. It, it may take three of us to get an hour of discussion out of conquest. <laughs> Probably not. But folks, I want to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I hope you are willing to join us again. Remember that if you want to become a part of the show by sending us an email and telling us how much we suck, <laughs> the email address is thebloodypit at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yep. So, until the next time you hear Troy and Troy and I babbling on about some mm. damned old movie. Mm-hmm. We want to thank you once again for listening. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we will talk to you again soon. It's a bright new day, Paula. We'll forget all our fears and start fresh. You know, all of the magic that you or anyone else needs is a generous heart and a steady mind. Paula, will you try to believe that? Yes, Norman. Are you happy? <laughs> <laughs>